0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
0: Let's go, Lord! One, two, one, two,
2: one, two, three, four! If you know what winning that contest means to me, and my friends. five years we've been playing 15 bucks a night club dates in places like Modesto and Redwood City.
0: And you really think you have a chance to win
2: We're going to be up there on that stage
1: in the finals. Pinsky, Daniel. Height, 6 feet. Weight, 150 pounds. Occupation, part-time in a cab. Sorry. Part-time on a stage.
0: Love is why I live.
1: Full-time, on the run.
2: Hey! What's the matter with you, man? You sick He's wanted. Count of five, Pinsky.
1: Wanted by the police for 78 parking tickets.
0: Yes. This is a taxi.
1: And three murders.
2: I thought I had a chance to clear myself.
1: Now I'm a murderer on the front page. Morning. Wanted by a girl named Amy.
0: That's real good, huh?
1: Forever. Fine, Pinsky. Pursued by just about everyone for a monkey. Get
0: off me, get off me! Get off me!
2: everybody's killing each other for a monkey precisely you little nothing you little niche this ain't an ordinary monkey
3: one of our men is missing an action
0: Pinsky's out there somewhere in no man's land cut off from his outfit But for Pinsky over hill over dale over every dusty
1: trail the halls of the cow palace to the shores of Sausalito
2: Oh! Man, find them!
0: Who are you? What is
2: this place? Who are those goons out there? Why can't I go? What's going on here?
1: motion picture that shows the world how to succeed in rock and roll without really dying.
2: What does anything mean without love?
4: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Morris Burshtinsky. Also, back in the booth is Mr. David Kittridge.
5: Give me the monkey.
4: On this special episode of the projection booth, we are discussing the 1980 film from director Jeff Werner, Die Laughing. The film stars Robbie Benson as Pinsky, an immigrant. Is he an immigrant? I thought he was Russian at first because he talks with a weird accent sometimes, but then not others. I guess he's just a cab driver. He was
5: born. In, it was orphanage. He was like, isn't wasn't, isn't his parents dying? He's in an orphanage. They they did that in the the whole bit there with the slides.
4: He's a cab driver. He's also an aspiring rock star. As most cab drivers do, he inadvertently gets mixed up in a web of international intrigue. We'll be spoiling all of them. Many twists and turns of Die Laughing. So if you haven't seen it, you're in for a treat and you've been warned. So Morris and David, I'm pretty sure that this is a first time watch for the both of you. And I'm glad you're brave enough to go on this journey with me.
5: Yeah. Anything for early eighties Orion movies. Like, you know, that's a whole sub genre of like Orion during this period that really we, you know, needs to have a deep dive.
4: I caught this one on cable. I was working at a cable station, uh, cable, um, service, whatever, Comcast. And, you know, we get free cable. We were sitting in the lunchroom one day and I caught this movie about midway through. And I think I actually recognized the point where I caught it and I fell in love. I was just like, this is the most. Batshit crazy movie I have seen in a long time. I was unable to find very much information about it at the time. Still, kind of tough to find a lot of information about it.
5: The Wikipedia page is like this happened, and that's that's really it.
4: The last time we talked, uh, Heaven had no Wikipedia page, so at least there's something there.
5: This was a teen heartthrob Tiger Beat cover model vehicle, really.
4: Oh my God, is Robbie Benson just dreamy or what?
5: I am not of the age where this would have, like, done something for me because in 1980, I was eight. However, his hair distracted me the whole movie. It looked like – I was like, if I had seen this in any – okay, I know this was the style. I know this was the style. I am aware. But it looked like somebody, like, shaved, like, a hairy man, made a wig, and threw it on his head. Now I know all of the te- all of the teen people of this era had that kind of mock top, but I swear it looked like it must be uncomfortable in the summer. It has to be right? I mean, you know I, i'm I'm bald so I don't have to deal with this, but it's like it just looked unwieldy.
6: I'm just wondering whether Leif Garrett had stopped being a thing because by 1980 when this film came out and this was his style, both David Cassidy and Leaf Garrett who were probably the greatest purveyors of that mop top, whatever you want to call it. Wasn't that in the ground? And I mean, when we get to the music, we'll probably be discussing a little bit more about the hairstyles and the look, but...
5: I think they were probably on their way out because this was in that kind of like pivotal moment when Disco died. And then, you know, basically we went into like New Wave, but this was just before New Wave. This was like right on the the cusp between that look and like pink mohawks I guess like 2 or 3 years later
4: and we are talking prime Robbie Benson here this is just post Ice Castle's Robbie Benson pre the Chosen Robbie Benson this is when he is in his prime time this is uh you know and this is how I remember robbie benson to be with that mop top with that kind of ice castles thing that he had going on i always i was very shocked when like beauty and the beast came out and i was like what that's robbie benson what are you talking about
5: well he kind of fell off right i mean he he did the last thing i know i mean i actually didn't do an imdb search on him i probably should have uh i mean the last big thing he did probably was harry and son right the paul newman movie in 84 Like, I don't remember him being in a lot of things. And I know he was at NYU for a very long time. I think he was at NYU when I was there, like probably thereafter. So he's been kind of teaching for a really long time, right?
4: Yeah. And he was your everyman as far as what you had to be in the 1970s going into the 1980s, which was not just an actor, but also a singer. I mean, people forget that John Travolta had a music career. There are so many actors at that time that doubled – as musicians as well. I mean, I'm talking more than just the Don Johnsons of the day. I'm saying that there were many, many people that had both acting and singing careers. This was not just limited to like Hong Kong stars from the 90s. This is our stars from the 80s and 70s had records. It
5: goes from Shatner and Nimoy all the way through Eddie Murphy party all the time.
6: But this ain't no party all the time.
5: There's only one Rick James.
6: If we're talking about his hair being several years out of date then the thing about this movie is his songs are out of date unless the thing I couldn't work out whether the songs that he sings as the uh, aspiring rock star are supposed to be a piss take in the mighty wind sort of vein or whether he was taking them seriously I mean first of all that vocal intonation that he had that was like a cross between Robin Gibb and Arlo Guthrie with a whole lot of tremolo and all that earnestness. Fuck! Uh, Oh, sorry, I wasn't going to be nasty about this. It just seemed a little bit out of date to me. And I'm really wondering, like in 1980, if, as you guys were suggesting, that this was supposed to be a film that was catering maybe to the uh, teenage heartthrob type of market really, were they going to be going for the Robbie Benson rush hour band or were they more likely to go for the uh, uh, punk band that we see late in the film or the funk band that we see in the middle of the film? I know that often when... Like, if you see... um, I'm thinking of a a film that was probably about the same year or maybe a year later, uh, Paul Simon's One Trick Pony. And we see... Uh, Paul Simon as a, uh, a working, a jobbing songwriter who had previously had this one big hit and that's all he was remembered for, but he's trying to be a jobbing musician. And then we see as he comes off stage in one early scene of the film, the then very new B-52s band comes on stage and the audience are really going more for them. So we see him as a man out of time. In this film, Robbie Benson's rush hour band really belongs more even it, let's say the songs you, you prefer you liked his songs but they belonged in 1971 72 not in 1980 and when the funk and the punk band are sort of made to be a little bit ridiculous in terms of the visuals you're supposed to laugh at them i think well no actually they were of their time whereas i really think robbie benson's brush hour band that's more like the joke band in my eyes anyway
5: I'm so glad that we're talking about the punk band at the end because I like I was watching this film that happened. And I was like, oh, my God, this is great. Can we have a movie about these guys? I really wanted to see it like Penelope Spheris, like call her, go back in time, get Penelope Spheris, do a crazy movie about a nuclear monkey with with this punk band. And it would have been really like. Amazing. Maybe Alex Cox could direct. I don't know. But all of his songs were very kind of like 1974, 75 hits. Like, it's like, it would have been like, a, like, you know, alongside a Linda Ronstadt number or a Helen Reddy number or something like that, which is not to denigrate either one. It was just like, that was the style. But then... This whole movie, like 1980, we have to remember in American culture, 1980 was a real turning point. It's like, remember, like the best the best way to describe it is Can't Stop the Music came out in 1980. Can't Stop the Music was shot when the village people and disco was huge. By the time it released, it was a disaster and a, a joke.
6: You know that Australia was the only place where Can't Stop the Music was a hit. Maybe France, but... But I remember that film. There were lines around the block. Um, I was I was not in attendance, but but um, I think also the same year, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was a, a flop. Even
5: here, so, I think that was a couple so. of years earlier. Uh, but that's a yeah. I uh, okay. I will I will stand for Can't Stop the Music. I I can't I can't get behind Sgt. Pepper. Uh, I've tried I've tried. I've tried watching that and tried enjoying it. <laughs> I can't do it. I don't know why. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because like, you know, he's obviously doing that teen beat. Like, it's that teenage girl thing where they have to be boyish and inoffensive and yet just slightly dangerous enough so that they can lust after them. It's like, it's like, you know, it's the boys they crush on before they actually have boys to crush on in their lives. You know, he's very cute. Like, the whole movie is, like, very cute.
4: We don't even get Robbie Benson for quite a little while. We go into this whole other story, you know. I think we actually start with Bud Court, which makes me think that he's going to be the lead of this film. And he's got this professor that he's talking to and the professor's kind of twitchy we don't really know what's going on with him then we follow the professor to his lab where there's this computer and this woman who's working on this computer with this monkey and she keeps flipping these switches and it makes these tones and the monkey goes nuts and starts typing on this typewriter and I'm just like okay yeah this movie all right I'm with it I am right there there's Peter Coyote outside wearing what looks like little TV sunglasses and They're just fantastic. I love it. Peter Coyote, who doesn't have any lines until right towards the end of the movie. Instead, he's just kind of this lurking figure throughout so much of it. And yeah, they're, they're not necessarily being as nice to this monkey as they could be uh, talking about how, if he, uh, if he doesn't produce any data, he won't get any food. And then they start laughing hysterically. And then in comes Larry Hankin who shoots up the place. And that's where we have our credit, our title credit of die laughing because they died while they were laughing at this poor little monkey.
6: I didn't catch that on the first view. And when I say the first view, I mean, I had a second bits and pieces type of view. And the second type of thought, oh my goodness, that's the reason that you've called this film Die Laughing for a blink and you'll miss it gag. Actually, I I wanted to raise one other point, which me watching from this side of the world and I'm sure it was, it's a throwaway thing for any Americans who were watching the film, but that moment where uh, the professor walks into the lab where his wife is doing her experiments and because everything's so top secret, uh, she hears the door go buzz, buzz, buzz. So what does she do? She picks up a gun beside her desk. He walks in and she's like, Oh, okay, put the gun down. And from this from this side of the world on 2019, everything that we read in the paper about all the gun violence in America and all the shoot-ups and all that, and I'm thinking, even in this film with these characters who are, you know, quite clearly, they're not going to pull a gun out and shoot, shoot up people, but it's so ingrained in the culture. It's seen acceptable in a 1980 film to just pull out a gun. Oh, no, it's someone that's acceptable. I'll just put that down. Where does a, a scientist working in a lab even in a top secret lab where does she have a gun over better security doors i don't know just that that bit illustrated a lot for me
5: it reminded me of that scene from 3 days of the condor the secretary at the front before anything happens has like a, a, a 45 but that uh, you know it's a cia like outpost or something so i, I that's that was the reference i got I, I don't probably probably wasn't a reference but it's like that's what it reminded me of
4: Did we talk about Larry Hankin getting the acid in his face?
5: That was gross.
4: I missed that. Speaking of blink and miss it, I missed how he got the acid in
5: his face. Yeah. Well, no, he threw it – the professor threw it at him. I I just want to point out – and I know this isn't the point. I know – because there's going to be people listening to this podcast who love this movie. The monkey is taught these computer codes or something, right? And that's what everyone wants. The, the The monkey has the codes in its brain, right? Because the professor taught the codes to the monkey. This was never written down. This is the most efficient way of, like, developing new technology. Like, the biggest brains in, in Russia and the United States and presumably China or any other nuclear power cannot figure out how to make nuclear waste into nuclear weapons. But what this dude is going to do, he's going to write it, he's going to figure it out, and then he's going to teach it. To a monkey, and that is his preferred medium for having this information. This seems like an unreliable plan to me.
4: What I think we should do is burn every copy of every Shakespeare play in existence and hope that a bunch of monkeys (laughs) can recreate them. This
2: is a thousand monkeys working at a thousand typewriters. Soon, they'll have written the greatest novel known to man. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. You stupid monkey.
6: Of course, that was that um, blink and you miss it bit where uh, uh, Robbie Benson says to the monkey, hey, hey Shakespeare, what's up? While the, while the monkey's typing on the typewriter. That, that's actually a bit where I thought, hang on, is this poor editing? Because he looks at the piece of paper and says, oh, this isn't an ordinary monkey. And then they never pursue it. What? They never show what's on the paper. What's he typed? Why isn't he an ordinary man? What's he typed? That he's a nuclear professor. Why is his go-to
5: a monkey? Like, wait, what, where did that come into his head? Like, oh, wait, I figured out this amazing technology. Monkey. That's, the, that's how we're going to do this.
6: Look, David, I think that the secret is that that monkey had a few friends in Hollywood. And he'd been to... A few parties and the agent said, come on, you got a job for my monkey. And I think, was it the year after this, that that same monkey got the starring role in Raiders of the Lost Ark?
5: Was that the same monkey for real?
6: I don't know.
5: Oh, well, it would have been cool if it were. They, they kind of look similar.
4: From what I understand, John Peters used to do this monkey's hair. And he said, you, my friend, are going to be a star.
5: I want to know if he did Robbie Benson's hair. I was actually watching this. I'm just like, did John Peters do his hair because maybe that explains a few things I can see this degenerating into us just dragging on this movie because let's face it it's a very draggable movie this is a very easy movie to drag it's about nuclear scientists a monkey Robbie Benson looking alternately very 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 upset or bored like one of the two it's like it's really it's either one of the two it's like oh my god they want me for murder and then, she, and then he's just like what do you mean it's like okay There's somewhere in there, that's where maybe he should have been. Anyway, uh, but as a movie, it's like, it's, it's, it's very sweet in the sense that this is like that, that kind of movie that doesn't get made anymore. Well, naturally, it doesn't get made anymore. It's just the wacky, you know, foul play, like, crazed, like, international, like, spies wackiness. Uh, which no one is ever supposed to take seriously. It's like, this is the least serious movie ever. And, you know, and it's a fun romp, except with dead bodies and bullets. And it's like, you know, it's like outrageous fortune in a way, like, which also had Peter Coyote.
4: I think that this movie is on the rise again. I think things like spy uh, or was it spies with Melissa McCarthy? I think the spy who dumped me, those things are kind of there, but they are buried. They are buried deep and they're not necessarily as popular as they once were because I remember
6: watching Foul Play and... What's Up, Doc? I think is another good precedent for that. And John Peters. Oh, good one. Um,
5: John Peters yeah. as well, yes. The Trouble with spies, is a terrible movie with Donald Sutherland. Uh, I mean, Trenchcoat.
6: I'd say that as well as it being a film about wacky spy hijinks i think another good precedent is the type of film which i i'm not sure if it's made anymore not because i'm not seeing those sorts of films but the the sorts of films where there's a couple that you know are going to get together by the end but they don't know it for a good chunk of the film at least one of them doesn't know it for a good chunk of the film so uh films like you know bringing up baby or i was a war bride or even the shop around the corner or something like that so it's got a history. It's got all these precedents. Yet I think that for me, all those illogical moments in the film, that just goes to the territory. I don't actually have a problem with that sort of thing. My issue is, I guess, purely with uh, Robbie Benson and Linda Grosvenor as really uncharismatic lead stars. But where I want to get positive on this film, Bud Court and Charles Derning. Can we talk about them for a couple of minutes?
5: And Elsa Lanchester for her like seven lines, but you know, yeah, they're ama- They're all amazing.
6: That was a wasted opportunity, I think. There, but Bud Court had that scene uh, later in the film where he's explaining his evil plan, and that for me made the film. I really, really enjoyed that. He's uh, quietly psychopathic. He's his character. He's a mummy's boy. Uh, he tells. Um, I've forgotten the name of the actress, but the the woman who takes a photos of Robbie Benson's crotch. That's uh, Thelma played by Rita Taggart.
5: Yeah, they never went back to that either. Like, wh- where did, where did that go? I expected that <laughs> to pay off. Like, okay, he's tied up. Is she going to try to seduce him or something? I mean, that would have been cool.
6: That would have been good. That would have been good. But he, um, where he's explaining his evil world plan, and he pretends to call the White House and how he's going to blow them up, and he says, I'm going to blow up your cities. No, cities, not titties. And he, he looked, and he... Pokes his tongue out. It looks like he's having so much fun. And I'm thinking, yeah, we need more of this. That was actually a really, really cool scene. But he's quietly unhinged. He's not going too far over the top. I just think that that was a a, a great Bud Court moment. And I think, yeah, he's definitely... Him and Charles Durning are uh, the two highlights of this film. And you know, Durning's character, I would like to have seen far more. But I think the first time I ever saw Durning in a film would have been... Was it 1979 when the Muppet movie came out? Doc Hopper, yeah. All these roles that he plays, uh, the, the salt of the earth. Even when he's playing a villain, you still sort of really like him. In this film, I mean, I, I get he's no Denny DeVito, Louis De Palme, but he's doing something different. That opening moment where he's seen with uh, Douglas MacArthur's picture in the background, and he's trying to get the men motivated. We've got to find our brother, Pinsky, and I'll give 50... No, hang on. $20. He's this... He's this. We've got to save our brother, even if I'm cut rate about it. We should talk
5: about Charles Durning and the streak he had for like four or five years, which was unbelievable. They had the Muppet movie. He had Best Little Horror House. He had Tootsie. He had To Be or Not To Be, for which he was nominated. I think... Was he nominated for Tootsie as well? He could have been. I know he was nominated for To Be or Not To Be with a Mel Brooks film. I mean, he... He was amazing in like so many movies and, and, and those are just the highlights from like a four year stretch right there. That dude had, been, had a career that just like went on and on and he was all, whenever he showed up in a movie, I was like, oh, good. This is like, it's one of the, he's one of those actors that whenever he shows up, you're like, oh, at least those scenes are going to be fantastic. Like he could be in the worst movie ever and it's just like, oh, okay. It's Charles Durning. I'll watch. He's great.
4: He was so good in Best Little Whorehouse. His act, and especially when he would put his hat on sideways and then turn fast and the hat would line up with his head, (laughs) that's one of the best things in that movie.
5: I just looked it up. He was nominated for Best Little Whorehouse, and he was nominated for To Be or Not To Be. He was not nominated for Tootsie. But I then completely forgot about his role in Dog Day Afternoon, which is so good. He is so good.
4: He was in another one that is kind of of the same wacky spy genre, and that was The Man with One Red Shoe.
5: Oh, yeah. I forgot. The Tom Hanks movie.
4: Oh, right. That's that Which one. I do not remember liking at all when I saw it, but I might have been too young for it because I saw it when I was 13.
5: It's a, it, I, it has to be a very, very, very long time since I've seen that film. I, I can't remember a thing about it.
4: But then
6: again, I saw Best
4: Little Whorehouse when I was 10,
6: so... I know you're not a fan of the remake of uh, "To Be or Not to Be." Unashamed, a fan. I think I saw that before I saw the Lubitsch version. So, I think if anything, it's just you know maybe people can accuse it of being an unnecessary remake an unnecessary copy. But I found it really appealing, and definitely Charles Durning was he was he was just chewing up the scenery in that film. I loved him to bits in in that. And I was also just thinking now. I think another film that I really like him in is um, A Brother We're Out there where he's playing that aspiring governor. He was so good with the Coen
4: brothers, because between that and Hotsucker Proxy, oh, so good. So, Morris, were you saying that Bud Court is
6: not unhinged in this movie? Oh, sorry. Did I make that? He wasn't over-the-top unhinged. Yes, he was very unhinged. Uh, if, I, if If I said he was unhinged, so, my bad. What I meant to say... He wasn't screamy, yelly, shouty unhinged. He was quietly unhinged.
4: Yeah, he goes for it in this movie. And I like that he starts off, like I said, he starts off as being like the quiet and like I thought he was going to be the protagonist of this. And then as we see him more and more and that we learn that he is the leader of this gang of thugs uh Larry Hankin is working for him Rita Taggart is Thelma his former nanny is there uh (laughs) Marty Zagon we eventually find out is working for him there's all of these people that are working for him he's got this just cast of characters as far as his gang go and yeah he is he is wild he is so wild and he's the best part of this movie for me I Absolutely love every single scene that he's in. And Robbie Benson just, I'm sorry, but he can't hold a candle to him. He just gets outacted
6: every scene that he's in. I think it's probably a good time to make uh, reference to what I now am deeming the Ferris Bueller effect. Now, bear in mind, I've never seen Ferris Bueller's day off, and I have no complaints or regrets about that. But I know that on Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal podcast, Gilbert has frequently said, how he hates Ferris Bueller's day off with a vengeance. And he even went and told... The first thing that he told Matthew Broderick when he came on the show was, I fucking hate that movie. He described that he hated it. He hated it because, ostensibly, we're asked to side with a character who is narcissistic, very, very selfish, and the villain of the piece is supposed to be the principal who's just doing his job and trying to get... This guy's playing truant to go back into school. And I ostensibly see Pinsky in a similar sort of way. What does he do? He's driving this cab around, doesn't really like his job. He goes and loads it with speakers and all he does is he, he is... Um, unaware of the fact that the professor who's sitting in the back of the cab has been shot because he's so obsessed with his music that he's listening to on his headphones. All he thinks about is his band. All he thinks about is his music. He's going to quit that cab job first chance he gets. And he crashes one cab and steals another two off his off, uh, the Charles Durning character. So, I, yeah, I term I this the Ferris Bueller effect. We really should be siding with Charles Durning rather than Robbie Benson.
5: I do want to make a mild defense of Ferris Bueller. Just very mild. I it's I I there are people I, I am I am in my mid forties. There are a lot of people my age who love like irrationally and crazy. There are a few movies like Princess Bride and Fish Called Wanda, and like there there they're that that just like there are people that just like, oh my god, I love this movie. And it's like the thing with Ferris Bueller is I don't think it's about siding with a narcissist who's selfish as much as it is The, the moral, if, uh, if there is a moral of the story, and I don't know if we're completely off track, the moral of that story is that life is not fair. In other words, the principal is like, you need to be in school, you're taking a day off, you're gonna get away with it. It's, it's the fact that he gets away with it is what galls him. It's like, how dare you get away with it? And then he goes, he doesn't just do his job, he goes way off his job and he like goes to his house and he tries to, like, all this craziness happens. And, You know, I I think that the, the takeaway from this is sometimes you just have to let people be themselves. And if we're to extrapolate that, I would say that Ferris Bueller is going to have a very hard time in middle age. But that's just me
4: he would be a horrible co-worker if like he keeps getting away with it if he's the guy that keeps like you know oh i'm gonna work from home today or you know just like and then you see pictures of him on facebook and you're like boss look at this what, what's going on he, he's over at the ball game he's like oh well you know that ferris oh well yeah, but no
5: boss would do that he would be he, like, during the the inevitable layoffs he would be the first one laid off so he, he i don't know i know uh... you haven't worked with some of my bosses. <laughs> Oh, that rascal! He's at the ball game. He said he was sick.
4: Oh, geez! What do you mean she puts a meeting on her calendar every Friday from 3 to 5 and then just leaves? What do you mean? There's a real wasted opportunity with Charles Fleischer. Charles Fleischer is one of his bandmates, and I think he's the only bandmate who actually gets any sort of lines, and he's got that strange scene where he's wearing the mask and then he takes off the mask. He's wearing another mask. it's just one of those, like, cause there's a lot of quirky scenes in this movie and that's kind of how it lives and breathes is through its quirkiness. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, but give me more, give me more Charles Fleischer. I want more of him in this, but instead most of the time he looks like he's just bored out of his mind playing bass and maybe blowing some harmonica during these just, like you said wretched songs that are going on and we should talk a little bit more about the music i was very surprised that robbie benson actually put out mr weinstein's barbershop as part of his i'm not dead yet which tied into his uh autobiography from 2012 and it's like really wow you're putting that out there (laughs) that's a good song for you huh
6: Personally, I'd much rather be listening to uh, Old Joe's Place from A Mighty Wind than Mr. Weinstein's Barbershop. And there is a promotional 45 of the second song that he
4: sings for the, I mean, he's doing full songs for these talent tryout auditions. That's quite a bit, but there is a 45 of that second song that he does, which is, hopefully, as we speak, on its way to my house and we'll be gracing the end of this episode. Are you
6: serious?
5: Oh my well, God, I can't wait yes. for this.
6: Oh, God. Is that the song that has uh, all those philosophical questions like, what's a song without music? Well, duh, it's poetry. And the other thing that I like about
4: this movie a lot is the circus scene. I actually really enjoyed the circus scene and I was so happy that it was Carol Strykin as the uh, Gregor, the giant. And uh, I always love seeing him show up and stuff. I was very excited to be able to talk to him about
6: his work on Die Laughing. So that was pretty good for me yeah that is a funny scene basically after um zukov goes back to to the main tent the strong man and benson are left on their own how they eye each other off and how uh, benson escapes you couldn't describe it to someone who hadn't seen the film he escapes by cracking a watermelon over his head that yeah i gotta admit that actually did give me a chuckle i mean it Could be completely rote, and there
4: are a lot of moments where you're like, okay, I've seen this before, and okay, yeah, I figure that that's going to happen, but it was nice to see. The other thing um, that I was very happy to see was uh, Pinsky and his entire band dressing up as Hasidic Jews and going into the uh, theater through a different door, and I was like, wow, Robbie, in a couple years, you're going to be playing this uh, in The Chosen.
1: Not since Fiddler on the Roof has there been a movie with this kind of feeling.
6: I was left wondering, why does the band need to get dressed up in the in, in, uh, Hasid garb? Because really, he's the one who's on the run. And when you think about it, in all the other parts of the film, for a guy who's on the front page of the newspaper and is a wanted man, he's not really doing much except in that scene to disguise himself. What does he do? He... Steals a cab, and then he goes out to the phone booth to call his girlfriend to find out how the monkey is, in full view of everyone. And you're sort of wondering, well, are you trying to be on in disguise because you're on the run, or not? So yeah, that uh, Hasidic moment it didn't make terribly much sense, but it was all a setup for that gag at the end when he uh, finally decides he's going to give himself up, and. Pinsky! Pinsky! Okay! Pinsky! Yeah. No, Pinsky! I'm Minsky!
5: It's uh, straight out of the Jazz Singer 1980. Felt It felt like it.
4: And what's up with that weird product placement for Three Musketeers that happens around this place? <laughs> Where he's shoving the Three Musketeers in his mouth and he's in that room just freaking out? I'm like, what am I watching here? This is amazing!
5: I want to talk a little bit, just, just for a moment, while while we have a chance, about the the way that these shots and these scenes are directed versus the way that they're cut like i was watching this movie and i just felt like okay there's an editor desperately trying to make this thing move like 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 real like i could see where the cuts were and i was just like okay he's really trying and like you know like like the the thing where he's on the rooftop there's a long 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 scene of him on the rooftop and then we're we're barraged by all the radios saying like you know He's on the, you know, he's on the lam. Everyone's looking for him. He's, you know, murderer and all that stuff. But the way that he's directed to respond to things is 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 so slow. Sometimes he's like, even when he puts down that that paper, he's like, "Now I'm a murderer on the front page." I like, I'm just like, wait a second. Did it, all all respect to the director, but like, could could we? Did he not think that just, like, okay, can you give me one that's, like, maybe twice the speed and a little more energy, Robbie? Like, can we just, like, it's a wacky comedy. Like, this thing should have been flying. This thing should have been, like, 85 minutes. You know, really? Or 90 minutes. Instead, it's just, like, there's some scenes that I'm just, like, this would be fun if it were just a little bit or a lot faster and more energetic and wackier and crazier. It's, like, you know... It just it felt like it needed a good dose of, I don't know, caffeine or something. Something stronger. I don't know.
4: There is a wackiness factor that comes into this, and he does play it very manic. Like when that professor is shot in the back of his cab, and he goes back there, and he puts his hands in the blood, and he wipes it on his shirt, and he's got the gun in his hand, and the woman comes up and screams, and he starts pointing the gun at her, and he's playing it super manic. And I'm like, okay, that's the pace. That's the energy that we need to keep up in this entire thing. But you're right. It just drops off precipitously as we go along. Also, to your point about editing, this movie is very strange when it comes to the edits. The one that really got me was, you mentioned, Morris, the whole idea of of, of uh, Mueller making that phone call. And then Robbie Benson... Pinsky ends up smashing the computer and he mocks him with this phone call and they're smashing the computer. And then all of a sudden, like the next cut, he's outside with his girlfriend and Charles Derning, And it's just like, what the hell just happened? How did we get from point A to point B? It just leaps in time and space. And there are a couple of those moments where I'm just like, what just happened? It feels like there's part of the movie that's missing.
5: I'll tell you exactly what happened. The editor was like, we got to get this moving, you know? And, and, and the problem was, or the issue was the director was not making that movie regardless of whatever was happening. Like he was, they were directed to be a certain way. Like I, I lost it at that cut too, by the way, that exact moment, I know exactly what you're talking about. I was like, wait, how do you get outside? You know, like what, and, and, and just blocking stuff like Charles Durning goes down to the, the, the cellar and just like, we got to get out of here. Like, you know, and, and, uh, what he says to follow her, I think it's like, you know, you lead the way. And then he pushes her aside and then goes. And I'm like, wait a second. He just said, you lead the way. And now he's going. And these are, these are decisions made on the day. These are decisions on set that are made. Even when he's mocking Bud Court before he throws the wine, wine bottle at the computer, it takes forever for him to deliver that line. Like, it's like, you know, uh, Mr. President, uh, Plans have changed or whatever. I'm just like, okay, so watch Hudson Hawk. If you want to, it, it, like, the, Hudson Hawk is actually an interesting kind of like parallel to this movie because it's also wacky, it's also super active, it's a much bigger budget, but that movie has a very consistent energy, and I'm actually a fan. I'm, I'm actually a big fan, I'm a fan of Hudson Hawk, but it's like, this movie needed that kind of wackiness. It needed, like, you know, Robbie Benson, when Budcourt came in the room and Robbie Benson had the bottle, I was like, Mr. President, it's changed! And it should have been like two seconds, he should have thrown the bottle and then left out the window or something to get out. It just, it feels like, on the set, the director did not know how to get things crazy active. Even like, Do you remember the scene in the apartment where he's walking around, someone's trying to bust in and he's walking around like in a daze? It looks like Barbara Hershey and the Entity. He's like walking around he's just like, What's happening? What's going on? I'm like, dude, you're a murderer on the lamb. Why are you going two miles an hour? Like, this whole scene is set up like a suspense scene. And I'm just like, this is not a suspense movie. Like, this is, this is a wacky comedy with like spies and bullets and guns. It's like, does nobody understand this? It's like, you gotta stay in that because no one, if you give them the audience a moment to think about it, they're like, Robbie Benson, a monkey with nuclear codes, spies, a circus Charles Durning being George Patton it's like it's dumb it's like no you need to, like the way this movie could have worked is like if it was just super fast and, and straight through and and yet we have these scenes that are just like weirdly protracted and deliveries that are like, even when he's in the car and he's like going back there with the guy it's just like dude, what are you doing? Like this should have taken like Hitchcock, like for what it's worth, not making wacky comedy would have been out in like 10 seconds. Instead we have like a good, I think 30 or 40 seconds of him shaking the guy saying stuff. You sick. Like, he Doesn't he say you sick like 17 times in this movie? Like what's wrong with you You're sick. It's just like, would it have taken, it would have taken 30 seconds for anybody to come up with a better line than that. Like just give Robbie a few other lines at all during that scene. I'm just like, what is going on? Like, are you guys lazy? I don't think you're lazy. I don't want to accuse that of you, but it's like the the stuff that could have been fixed about this movie needed to be done on set. And it would have taken almost no effort. And it, it boggles my mind why it wasn't done. I
4: am very curious about some of the behind the scenes of this. I mean, the screenplay was written by Scott Parker and Jerry Siegel. And Jerry Siegel is Robbie Benson's, I guess it's his father, right? Married to Ann Benson, but it's the Benson name, it's not the Siegel mm-hmm. name. And then Scott Parker, he has two two writing credits, and that's it. And I'm just very curious. Like, is there another Scott Parker out there who is getting miscredited or something? He changed
5: his name to Akiva Goldsman. You can't you can't find out. It's a velvet goldmine situation. If you find out, they'll try to kill you.
4: Breaking the story right here. <laughs> But I'm just wondering how much was this Robbie Benson as the son and Jerry Siegel as the father going, this is a vehicle. This is the vehicle for Robbie. He's going to make it. He's going to be big with this. He's going to do it. He's going to be bigger than Chevy Chase in this movie. And they just didn't know necessarily how to do that. It just, yeah, it just doesn't seem to work. Robbie, you didn't swallow your charisma pill this morning. There's another scene that is super protracted too which is when peter coyote finally says hey i'm from the fbi and i'm gonna save you and i'm gonna kill the monkey and then Pinsky like goes down below decks and he's there and he's like waving his arms out and she's supposed to drop the monkey and then we never see he never pulls his arms back in with the monkey it's like the, the scene ends at the wrong place, but instead there's all of this, like, them creeping up on her, them creeping up on her, and it goes on for way too long, and then the payoff never happens. I could pick apart a lot of this stuff because there are a lot of these moments, like, even in, in the big finale. So we've got the Battle of the Bands, and I'm so glad that you guys like the Lloyds, the punk band, because I love them.
5: I looked them up on Spotify. I'm like, are they on Spotify? They're not on Spotify, unfortunately. But I'm like, I, I totally want that song. If you get that song, I want a copy of it.
4: I am looking for it and I found all these pictures of Lulu the lead singer and Peter the 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 lyricist and I'm like looking for more information about this band. I was just like, wow, these guys are great. And then Pinsky gets on stage with quote unquote rush hour, his band, who are anything but rushed, and they throw a cold bucket of water over the entire audience. It's just like, okay, we're gonna go from this high energy punk song to this folksy kind of shit, and I'm just like, what the fuck? Is going on, and then you got Mueller coming in wearing these incredible kiss type boots with all these spikes on it. And then all of a sudden, he breaks through the ceiling. It's like you were standing there a few seconds ago, now you're breaking through the ceiling, and he lands. And then Pinsky never wins the battle of the bands, but instead says, Hey, this guy has kiss concert tickets on him all over his body, and I'm expecting all these people to start ripping off his clothes but that doesn't happen either. (laughs) And I'm just like, come on. And like, you're aware
6: of KISS. Why can't your band be as good as KISS? just seemed quite unusual to me that the audience goes nuts for rush hour and yet they'd go crazy for the idea of getting free KISS tickets. I mean, it sort of seemed a bit of a contradiction in terms. But just while you were saying that, Mike, a thought came to my head. We spoke previously on the See Here podcast together about the... uh, Kiss meets a Phantom of the Park. And a thought just occurred to me that it could have been a better film. Because as much as, you know, we like Anthony Zurb. Hi, Heather, if you're listening. As much as we like Anthony Zurb, I don't think he did a terribly good job in that film. But if Bud Court had been the crazy professor in that, I reckon Kiss meets a Phantom of the Park would have been a better film
5: yes i completely agree that is a great idea and i wanted to point out also it's the same thing that happened at the beginning of the apple where you had a really interesting song and then you had the really bad downer folk song and apparently everyone likes that more have we seen the apple because we need like i i wholeheartedly recommend the apple it came out the same year
6: Listen, I got to tell you, David. We covered the Apple as a request on on my podcast. See here, and I, I'm not just saying this as a figure of speech. I literally felt like I was having a heart attack while watching the film. I hate that film so much. I fucking hate it.
4: I did a. Very big episode on it. I love that movie, and I managed to get so many good interviews for that. I actually got to talk to Menachem Golan, and I was able to speak to both Iris and Kobe, who wrote the music for that. So I was very happy, as well, as some of the stars, including uh, Joss Adclin,
6: who played God. Did you ask the songwriter how he came up with such a great lyric, like, meet an actual, actual, actual vampire? I mean,
5: amazing that's okay that scene is amazing all right like i will look and and then there's that ridiculous like sexual metaphor song with no metaphors in it whatsoever it's like i what what is she saying like come into me or it's just unbelievable i'm like am i watching this is this for real and of course you can't the speed number anyway i I could go on about the apple but yes at the beginning of the apple they have that rockin' number right with and and then they're talking about how they're like 120 heartbeats and stuff and then they have that like la 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 and everyone's like oh my god it's amazing it's like okay no not even in the future world of 1994 is this amazing
4: know your audience i mean the audience who goes crazy like you said for the rush hour band is not going to be all into to kiss. And I thought that Bud Quartz boots were like a tribute to kiss. And I was so excited. And you know, like when he starts Pogoing and stuff to the Lloyds, like just a little bit, I was like, yeah, all right. I can get into this. And I was hoping like music would really open up Mueller and like, he would become a different person and be like, Oh, screw this. I'm going to join a punk band or something like that. But it's like his defeat is just, so nothing. It's just there's a throwaway line where he's like, I don't like to be touched. And then Robbie Benson or Pinsky's like, oh, yeah, he's got kiss tickets hidden all over him. It's like, oh, okay. It's like the end of
5: perfume, which I went <laughs> over with you on this podcast.
4: Oh, well, that would be fantastic had they just torn yes, him apart until he was Isn't nothing. is
5: that the implication that like the crazy teenage fans like ter- Maybe, maybe, maybe this is Robbie Benson saying something about like the pressures of being a teen beat model like oh there you know you go. maybe maybe there's a level here that we're not we're not we're not paying attention to.
4: We have so skipped over Linda Grovener.
5: No no we haven't. We she, haven't. We uh,
4: haven't. I'm sorry. We haven't. Let's, she's let, let's talk about her.
5: I, I'm sure she's very nice.
4: She's probably a very very nice person.
5: Yeah, I'm sh- look. Uh, not casting aspersions you're an actor you're in a movie you have a script you have a director you do what the script tells you to say you do what the director wants you to do maybe she did all that i hate bad-mouthing artists (laughs) i really do i'll be real nice and say i got nothing out of her performance at all avoid it was not there
6: should have been tatum o'neill
5: should have been it should have been the chick from um the pregnant one who wasn't pregnant who I thought it was from the trailer. I thought that was her. And then I was like, oh, that's not her. That's just another, you know, woman from that era that looks exactly like her. But that's who I thought it was. I, I don't remember her name. Like, the Irish one, you know who I'm talking about? The one who was with Michael O'Keefe, who, you know, missed her period and thought she was pregnant, but then wasn't, and ran around the golf course in a nightgown. Who was the short-haired girl? Oh, my God. All my gay friends who know all of this are going to be so mad at me for not knowing these names. Who was the short-haired girl from Meatballs, who was also in Jaws 2, who had that, like, really screamy line? Like, shark! Her.
4: She looked like Christy McNichol to me with that haircut. Yes,
5: but it was, it's not her, though. It's It's...
4: no i know that but no it totally reminded me of the girl from caddyshack i in fact i even misreported that but yeah i feel bad for her because there's also supposed to be like a weird love triangle thing that's going on with uh robbie benson and his girlfriend that he mentions or it might get mentioned for him i think it's uh when there's like a briefing
5: she's cheating on him and and then it's done like she's that's that's just you know, like oh she's cheating on me and then he falls in love with the sister.
4: It's like okay, I guess that is done. Yeah, there's just there's a lot of missed opportunities.
5: We haven't talked about John Peters yet. Actually, but maybe we need to talk about him for a minute.
4: Well, yeah, let's talk about John Peters, who was the producer of this movie, which might have been another factor insofar as this not being a hundred percent successful. I mean, he had a touch. I won't say it was a golden touch, but he. Um, he definitely was a powerhouse when it came to 70s and 80s films.
5: Oh, Donna Wilkes. I'm sorry. It was Donna Wilkes. That's who I'm thinking of. Anyway, go back. Yes, John Peters, you, you can't say that he wasn't successful and you can't say that he didn't have an instinct for what the public wanted a lot of the time. Not every time, but you know, he is probably, from what I understand, uh, especially alongside his, his future partner, Peter Goober, when they took over Sony Pictures or took over Columbia for Sony – it's detailed in that wonderful book Hit and Run, which if you wanna hear about Hollywood uh in the eighties, it's the best book ever. It's amazing. But John Peters was Barbara Streisand's boyfriend. Uh he wanted to make a name in Hollywood, he wanted to do some stuff. So he was a he he had a couple of producer credits, right, on some Barbara Streisand stuff, like including a Star is born.
4: Yeah, Stars right. Born, the main event.
5: But yeah. he wanted to branch out and do stuff that wasn't just Barbara. So I mean, this was – I think – but also Mark Canton, who's in the credits as an executive, uh, he went on to run, I think, Warner Brothers. So, I mean, there's a lot of executive producing talent behind this movie with a lot of people who have – you know, or had extremely good instincts and were very successful, just not with this movie.
4: Yeah. um, John Peters also produced – one of his earliest producing credits was The Eyes of Laura Mars, and that's a movie that I would love to get – the full enchilada all of the behind the scenes stories i mean that it was based on a john carpenter script and that they rewrote carpenter i've always wanted to read that carpenter script and irving Kirshner, i think was the director he has a lot of people absolutely loved him but then i know i've talked with nancy allen who could not stand him so it's just like all right, you know, what's the story here? I want to know all of the dirt. I want to know the skinny on that movie. She, she
5: worked with him on Robocop 2? Correct.
4: Yeah. And just could not stand working with him.
5: That's a shame because, I mean, honestly, it's like – and I'm not a – I mean, I enjoy Star Wars, but I'm not a, a fanboy. But Empire Strikes Back is just a legitimately great movie, even even if you're not into the whole – Star, and, and now it's an industry. It's a whole genre. And it's like you go back and watch Empire Strikes Back, and it's like just as a movie – structurally the way it's executed emotionally it is just a fantastic movie and a lot of that credit has to go to irvin Kershner, who kept pushing lucas to go further and be bigger and lucas was like it's too expensive it's too expensive and he said this himself um but that movie has a, a grace about it that i think the rest of the star wars franchise wish it had
4: I totally agree. And Irving Kirshner also directed another funny spy movie, well, funny in quotation marks, which was Spies, the one with uh, Donald Sutherland and
5: Ellie Gould. Yeah, emphasize the quotation marks on that one.
4: And also Joss Ackland, who talked about just how fucking crazy that set was. I think it both has Joss Ackland and Vladik Shebal, who played the devil yeah, in the Mr. Apple. Mr.
5: Boogaloo. Yes, let's go back to talk about the Apple more. That'll. that'll... No! <laughs> <laughs>
4: All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from director Jeff Werner. Then we'll hear from one of the stars of Die Laughing, Mr. Carl Stryken. And we'll be back with both of those right after this.
5: You know, the girl from that. Yes, the. Yes, I know. On that. God, I know exactly um, who
4: you're talking about.
5: She has the hair. The,
4: the hair was it, but it was different, and she has the, 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 the lips. She has the lips with the... Okay, yeah, wait. The, she, no, she was just... Okay, you've seen her in a million movies. You know... But the, who, but the one that... We're talking about the exact same person. Movies, 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 movies. We don't always suck as bad as this, but listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast.
5: You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers.
4: That was good. Oh, he's got you crying
6: over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much.
1: Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, no or fish to any of these questions love that album is the show for you every month morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail they'll cover the performer the history behind the recording the musicianship common thematic elements between the songs and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. You
0: know,
4: I've been looking at your CV and I'm it, I see all of these connections between you and Barbara Streisand and I'm very curious what's the connection
3: well, it's a, it's a long one. Um, I think it started, um, I would say, probably uh, in the early 70s. I was working uh, at a post-production house um, where I had gotten a job in a very circuitous way. I, I had come down to, I was a school teacher originally. I taught fourth and fifth grade in New York, uh, in Harlem. And I moved out to San Francisco. I lived there for a while, and then I came down to Los Angeles, and hopes of getting into the film business, I got a job at a post-production house where they did trailers. and I got a job as the as an assistant editor, even though I really didn't know anything about editing. And we were working on the sting, if you remember the sting, uh, the Paul Newman film. And, uh, and I, they were doing the trailers and television and commercials for. It. The editor I went for had designs on selling Indian jewelry at that time. And he was a little bit of a a crazy kind of guy, and he just sort of disappeared, and I wound up finishing the campaign on this thing. Anyway, so I became an editor there, and that um, led to, at that time, there were many, well, I guess we called like uh, featurettes that were being made for the networks. Um, If the movie of the week ended early and they had 15 to 20 minutes to fill, we would supply them with these featurettes behind the scenes, um, filmmaking of major motion pictures, the towering inferno um lucky lady that kind of thing big big films that we would do behind the scenes I became kind of um did pretty well with this company it was called kaleidoscope. The owner was a guy named Andy Keene, who was sort of a mentor and a great guy and um one of the things that it led to these sort of featurettes that we did for the networks was um an hour behind-the-scenes documentary um, on the making of A Star is Born. And um, so we went down to uh, Tempe, Arizona, where they were doing the big concert scenes with Chris Gustafsson and Barbara, and, and um, we filmed there. And then we took the stuff back, and then I filmed again at Barbara's house. And I met Barbara that way. Um, and then I put together uh, an hour show, in the show, there was like a montage of uh, some of the work that was going on for the film, and um, I don't know exactly the sequence of events. But at one, at one point, I got a phone call from uh, from Barbara's office saying, "Would you come to uh, her house to watch a rough cut of the of the film of the actual film?" She liked the, the documentary I did had done and and she liked the um the montage in there, and she thought that the style of cutting that I had in that film was something that she wanted to explore possibly for her film and um Frank Pearson was the director of that film and um but Barbara had I think the final cut, and so she had taken over the film more or less I would say um after this first rough cut it was about three or so. Hours long. Anyway, I went there, and uh, there were various other people there as well to watch the film in their screening room. John Peters, her boyfriend at the time, Hal Ashby's wife, John Ashby, who was kind of an assistant to Barbara, and Marilyn Allen Bergman, uh, the songwriters and composers. We all sat and watched the film, and then we sat around talking about what the film needed and didn't have or what whatever. And um, But that kind of started a relationship uh, she asked me to come on and be the second editor to Peter Zinner uh, on Stars Born. And so that really started a relationship that's lasted all the way through till... Well, I, fil- I, ju- I filmed her concert tour in Israel about, I don't know, four or five years ago. That was kind of the last thing I think I did with her. And I got a call her the other day when she was going to Hyde Park to perform... Uh, but then we decided not to do it. Uh to possibly go over there and film that event. So we still have that relationship and we're still good friends and she still um we get we're in touch every now and then. Barbara's led to John Peters, who was the producer on Die Laughing. Um and so that's kind of the connection. But I, I stayed with Barbara after Die Laughing and, and edited on Intel and Nuts and um and then I was the sole editor on um, Mirror Has Two Faces with her. And um, and so that's sort of been a connection with Barbara.
4: How was that going in as this, I don't want to say amateur editor, because you had been doing all of this other work, but I'm, were you in the union at that point and or did they have to make special provision?
3: I was in the union, and I had been doing, you know, I'd done a lot of the kaleidoscope was the name of the production house and it, it was one of the biggest and we did not only things like The Sting, which is a pretty big film but we did the exorcist we did a lot of we did jaws we did a lot of the big films that came along um and even though they're trailers trailers are not unlike motion pictures they do have a beginning middle and end and you have to make them touch people in some way or you have to hope that people respond to it so in that sense, um, uh, there's some, some, you know, there is some editorial chops that you have to have to do it. Um, but I was, I was, you know, I was very young. Um, I was like 30-ish, you know. So I was a young guy, and I had come from nothing to do with film. So I didn't really know what was possible or not possible, what was it acceptable or not acceptable. So I kind of just was um, sort of freewheeling, and I think that 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 stood me in good stead. I think that I didn't have any preconceived notions of what a major Hollywood picture would be like. I was not particularly, um, uh, intimidated by Barbara or, you know, worried that I wasn't going to match up with people there. Um, so, um, it turned out to be a wonderful, you know, experience and a learning experience, naturally for me because, um, you know, I was dealing with some great footage and I was dealing with some great talents. So that was all nice.
4: I do have to ask why the decision to go from teaching to film. I mean, that seems like such a radical shift.
3: Well, it is. And it isn't. I mean, I, I, I I was involved when I was teaching, uh, I was involved politically. Um, It was, you know, the late sixties, early seventies. And, The films that were coming out at that time, like Midnight Cowboy and Z, Costa Garvis's film, Easy Rider, Sunny Bloody Bloody Sunday, these were all kind of films, Clockwork Orange, these were all kind of like political films in a a way, and some very directly and some not as directly. And I wanted to get in film because I thought it was going to be a way to affect people's um, hearts and minds. So to speak, which is kind of educational in a way, um, and so it was part of that time. I, you're maybe too young, Mike, to remember those times, but that time everything, was, you know, challenging, to, you know, the status quo, challenging what was acceptable, and um, and so I thought that I would come here and I would try to make films that were um, about things that mattered, you know, issues that mattered.
4: Now, I know you said this is John Peter's connection with Die Laughing, but I'm curious, when or how did you get involved with, and this movie has a couple different titles, I've seen Cheerleaders Wild Weekend versus uh, The Great Girl Robbery, I'm not sure which you filmed it under.
3: They're both, They're both. it's the same film. Um, at this post-production house, Kaleidoscope Films, um, I was probably their senior editor there at that time, and... Somebody came to um, Andy Keene, who was the head of the company, and said, um, I have some money to make this, to make a script, make a film. And you had a script. And so one of our writers at the company um, sat down and, and wrote a script about, um, and it was also the time when there were a lot of um, sort of exploitation films without being uh, particularly hardcore, there they they were more kind of titillating kind of um, fun romps with girls, and they were called the pom-pom girls and uh, surfer girls or whatever. And so this is going to be one of those where there was a cheerleading competition in Sacramento from various different high schools, and their bus gets hijacked by three disgraced uh, football players, professional football players um not not a major script and um uh and so that and so they asked me to do it. I did it for a dollar because i was an- i was an employee there and um and i did my did my first film, which is always a great thing to do is to try to get your first film.
4: What was that experience like for you?
3: It was wonderful, even a small film has the um the excitement of actually working with actors finding locations, writing the scene, rehearsing, shooting, editing it, you know, its so all the wonderful things that one might like about filmmaking, um, they were true about that film, even if it were not particularly stellar in its script uh, or in its acting or uh, its ex- execution. But for a lot of people, there were people in there who went on. Chuck Russell, who did The Mask as a d- director in other films, Chuck Russell was my First AD, I believe. Um, there are a couple of other people who went on to do some major work
4: uh, with major studios uh, and who learned, you know, on that film like I did. What was it like for you working with actors? Had you had that experience before?
3: You know, I had not I did a little bit in, in college. Um, and so that was probably my weakest um, skills set on the set, on the set. Um, I was more, I mean, I knew, I think, from my editorial and from, you know, when you do trailers, which is where I started, you see films. You see a lot of films, and you break them down, and so you really do get to know what made for a good film and why it was good and also what made for a bad film. And so I would say that, you know, my experience with actors is more in terms of giving them pretty much free reign in that they were hired because I thought they were good and that their work in the past had been good. And so I thought that they knew what was supposed to be delivered. And then in instances where I didn't think they had delivered what it should have been, that's when I would step in and, and make suggestions.
4: Well, how did you get involved with Die Laughing?
3: My relationship with Barbara and John Peters went from stars born to, I guess the next thing was main event. And uh, I was sort of a a liaison co-producer person, uh, sort of being a a liaison between Barbara and the director, Howard Zeef, who's a famous commercial director and as well as did some very fine comedies. And and while we were in editorial on that film, John had um, an opportunity with Orion to make two films. Orion wanted one of the films to be Caddyshack. And uh, it was obviously, you know, Bill Murray and and Chevy Chase. And those guys were very big from Saturday Night Live. And um, they wanted to do Caddyshack. And and John wanted to do this film with Robbie Benson because Robbie had done one-on-one in Ice Castles prior to... I think that he had done both those prior to Die Laughing... In any case, he was um, not only one of those successful films, but he had kind of become a heartthrob uh, in the late 70s, uh, early 80s. And he was like on cover of Tiger Beat, which was a teen magazine at that time. And so he was a, a, you know, a hot property, so to speak. And so John was interested in doing a film with him. And, and Robbie and his dad, who had written One on One, which was a very good film, I thought, um, wrote this script, Die Laughing. And um, John came to me and knew me from my editorial work with Barbara's Films and his films, um, and offered me the chance to direct Die Laughing, and
4: actually I wanted to do that, so um, I I took it. Talk about uh, just an amazing cast. I mean, everybody down the line, that must have been experience to work with like Charles Durning or Elsa Lancaster I mean just so many amazing people
3: yeah it's interesting yeah I mean uh, I watched the film recently but since your call or you're, you're contacting me um, and Durning was great <laughs> Charlie Durning I mean i not just in the film but he was just such a great guy and a, and a wonderful actor and a wonderful sort of partner in the film he was just a Really lovely, lovely guy, and there were a lot of people also in this film. Or a lot of people. There were some people in this film who were actually, um, you know, Peter Coyote's first film. Um, uh, obviously, Peter's gone on to bigger and better things. But I was—he was, he was uh, part of the Diggers, which was a, a, a political group in in San Francisco, and I think he had just started acting. Charlie Fleischer is the voice for Roger Rabbit. He was one of the kids. in in Robbie's band um, so yeah there were a lot of great people um, who were you know did I thought did some very nice Lisa um, Rita Taggart did some nice work in it and I, Larry Hankin I thought did a great job as well um, Larry was good so yeah it was it was uh, a lot of actually a lot of work and I forgot completely about it because I haven't really looked at the film or thought about it for quite a while until you contacted me and I was watching the film and saw the amount of uh, production set pieces that we had I had no recollection of you know had that we had so many set pieces the whether it's the circus or whether it was the ship at the end of the scene, at the end of the film or whatever it was all those people jumping to the San Francisco Bay at the end I was uh, surprised that we had we did had so much stuff on that film but uh, we did a lot
4: Yeah what was that like shooting on location
3: We had some great guys on the, ca- the crew. The crew is from San Francisco itself. Dave Myers, who was one of the cinematographers from Woodstock, the film Woodstock, he was my DP. And he was lovely, lovely guy. And um, we shot up in Napa, um, uh, that whole sequence with the vineyards. That was a very, very difficult shoot, only in the sense that it was extremely hot. It was summertime, and it was probably 104 degrees. And shooting's grueling. We also, you know, run the risk of when you shoot on location. We shot at somebody's very beautiful kind of, um, what do you call it like a villa on the, on the vineyard. And the room in which Bud Callahan, Bud Court, was great to work with. Bud is a wonderful guy um, and very original. And he actually unfortunately had a car accident just prior to start of production. And that's why he has a broken arm in the film, um, and those scars across his forehead are not makeup; they're real. So we were worried that we were going to lose him. Literally, I mean, it may have been maybe days before production started, he had this very bad car accident. But he was very, very. Uh, we changed the schedule a little bit to accommodate, but he was very brave and very um, willing to, you know, to continue on. In any case, the the room that had his characters computer that's going to steal the plutonium secrets or whatever, they had on, on either side of the big doors, two huge, enormous, probably 12 foot high, candelabras, wooden candelabras. And you see, you'll see in the film, if you watch the film, Robbie comes in to confront Mueller, the, the court character, and he swings the doors open and nobody had put a sandbag behind the doors. And one of the doors swings totally open and hits the candelabra, and it comes crashing down. And Robbie doesn't miss a beat; he keeps on playing in character. But we're all like frantic because it's a very expensive piece of artwork that was broken to smithereens. Um, so that you know, so location is um, you know got its good stuff and its bad stuff. And um, uh, but it was you know we that the house we found for Robbie's. Uh, home, which was a, a house, a Victorian house they were going to be moving, so it was up on stilts. That gave us a very nice look for this kid's, um, you know, living in an abandoned building uh, location. And um, so that you always get those kind of neat things in, in that case. And you always can steal stuff on the street. You can, when Robbie um, pulled over his cab in the beginning to see what's wrong with this passenger, and his passenger's dead. And he grabs the passenger's heart and blood all over his hands. And some woman opens the cab door and asks for a taxi. And she sees all the blood on him. And she starts screaming. And people start looking out their windows or construction workers would turn their heads. And you'll see them in the film. You can just sort of grab those while, while it's happening because they're, they're free. Um, so there are a lot of nice things about location shooting.
4: You're working with a monkey. One of your first films out. I mean, that had to have been a challenge unto itself.
3: Yes, that was not. <laughs> that was not the better part of of the workday. Was working with a monkey. Um, I mean, San Francisco does have all these incredible locations, so you do have the benefit of that. We found, you know, we found the club at the end of the film in San Francisco. We found the the ship in San Francisco. We we I had wanted the Russian circus to obviously have a kind of malevolent aspect to it. So I wanted it to be in the, kind of in the clouds and in in the fog. And we found this great area out by, you know, the Avenue San Francisco, but out by the ocean where it's always pretty much foggy in the summertime from like two in the afternoon on. So we knew that, you know, we were going to have a good four or five hour stretch of fog and clouds, um, almost every day that we wanted to shoot there. And we did. And it was, great there was no sunshine it was all cloudy and foggy so it affords you all that the monkey uh, gives you just the opposite it, it, it limits your it limits your your ability to to you know get out with take two because the actor may be fine with a act you know take two and i may be fine with take two but the monkey didn't work and uh you don't want to constantly be separating the monkey from the protagonist, you know, as a, as a single, you want to keep them in the scene, and you want to keep them with the other characters to, to create that reality. Um, and so it's always dependent on whether the monkey's going to come. You know, in the, in the movie, Ruby does this little musical thing to attract the monkey because the monkey's supposedly trained for that react to react to that. And, you know, there are many, many takes where he would be doing the doing, 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 and uh, the monkey wasn't moving. Or you know, left the set. So, yeah, it was not. It was not easy. There were that was difficult, and also we had you know a lot of um, a lot of scenes that Bobby had to be in. So there was a lot of um, effort on his part, a lot of stamina that he needed to to do all those scenes because he's almost in every every scene. I think.
4: Well, what was it like to work with him, and was there any pressure since it was a script that he and Ed had worked on?
3: Yes and no. I, I think I think this is probably the rigueur for most films that get going. You're always so interested in getting a green light from the studio. I mean, if I'm talking about NASA studio. When we had Orion agree to do the script, the instinct was to get it going and that's and around too much. We did some rewrites, uh, as I recall. I don't quite remember whether they were that extensive. But you, you have somebody who's given you a go and, and you don't want to take the chance that somebody will change their mind or somebody will fall out schedule-wise or whatever. So there is a impetus um, to, once you get a go, to go with it and try to figure it out as you, you know, later on. That was, you know, obviously something that Robbie and his dad felt very strongly about in terms of the script. They, um, I think, had had it for a while. We were, we were hoping the film was going to be sort of in the vein of foul play, a Chevy Chase Goldie Hawn kind of film, where it was a kind of a filler, kind of like kind of a fun, silly, fun ride, and not, nothing really taken too seriously. Um, and so there were, I, you know, I think there were things in there that worked better than others. And I, Robbie was always extremely uh, generous in, in, in not only ideas, for a scene or for, or for um, performance, but he was always very much willing to do it again and willing to change it slightly. He's, uh, you know, he's, as you probably know, I mean, he's a, a real professional.
4: Yeah, I know he would go on to be a director just, I guess it was about eight years after he would direct his first thing. Was he picking your brain as far as how he, the actual mechanics of directing was? You
3: know, Robbie started very young, you know, and... I think he was a director certainly right before I was. Um, I think he he knew what he you know what what was what worked and what didn't work, and um, I think he learned a lot from um, you know when he worked with uh, Paul Newman and when he worked on One on One. I think there was a you know a lot of learning that he did in terms of understanding directing and understanding where the camera should go and, and and pacing and that kind of stuff.
4: So as you're rewatching the movie the other night, I'm curious what other stories are coming to mind as you're watching this.
3: <laughs> there was always the the question at the end of the the film where Bud Court has to come down from the ceiling with these shoes that have these three inch spikes on them that he hopes to enter into the Robbie Benson character said when he comes down. The question was always, "Wouldn't?" And 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 he's there while the competing band against Robbie's band, is a punk band, um, singing a song called "I Don't Like You." It was like the early, early beginnings, I think, of punk music at that time. Anyway, um, he he appears at that club during this competition while they're singing. The punk band is singing. And he starts sort of pogoing around to the music. Big question as to whether that character, Mueller, would ever (laughs) be doing that. Um, And then, you know, just various different logistics of getting him up in the ceiling with these spikes on and having him come down on a harness after he had, you know, just been in this car accident a month or so beforehand. That that was a simple thing. I had no idea whether in one of the scenes we'd ever get the monkey down from the from the street sign. Uh, the monkey climbs up a street sign to the top of the street sign. And it's, I don't know, two in the morning, three in the morning, and it's not working. The monkey's not jumping down into Robbie's arms. So, unfortunately, eventually, he or she did. I can't even remember if it was a he or she. You know, there was questions when we were making when we were on the boat at the end, and Peter Coyote shows up from off. He he comes up off the railing of the ship. So we were coming from, we didn't bother to tell anybody. But his two sidekicks, his two other FBI guys, are drenched, wet. So it's one of those things where they had to do that take constantly. They were always and we had to do that take several times, and involve the monkey again. Naturally, for that San Francisco, it was kind of a big deal to have this film being made, so that was kind of nice. Uh, we got a nice spread, I think, in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, before the film uh, finished shooting. The, I, I know that when we had the, the, the police staking out the uh, temple, you know, the synagogue in the film where Robbie runs in, with his band in order to avoid detection so they can get to the finals of this um, or the semifinals of this of the singing contest, there was a lot of real concern about why are the police outside the synagogue and we had we had SWAT teams and you know various cop cars and all that kind of thing and crowds naturally showed up not crowds that we were controlling but just crowds. And if you look at it on the on when you look at it on uh, on the film, it's a considerable group of people who are surrounding this synagogue. So that was kind of interesting.
4: What did the movie do when it opened?
3: The film came out and then came out again on DVD. And it had a whole new kind of life uh, when it came out on DVD. When it initially opened, it was uh, pretty much panned, as I recall. It had a negative effect on my career uh, afterwards. I don't think it did particularly well. Interestingly, though, when I read, which is kind of interesting, when I read some of the reviews on Amazon, where you can you know, Amazon Prime or IMDb or any of the places where they have reviews of the of the film, they're basically all very positive, and uh, I find that really kind of endearing in a way because I think uh, there are people who saw it as kids and really really liked it and have gone back and watched it on DVD or on on streaming with their kids who really like it. And they have certain little things that they actually, you know, remember from the film. I don't know if you've read them, but they're, they're, they're fun and they're interesting in terms of how, what things in the film stuck out and really, they really enjoyed.
4: What was it like for you to not be editing your own work? It was great. In fact, I should mention Neil
3: Travis, Neil Travis, uh, unfortunately has passed away, but Neil was a wonderful editor Academy Award-winning editor after the film. When a, dire- when a director starts a film, um, they're kind of they kind of marry the writer, and um, and they have a really, you know, ideally wonderful marriage. But then production starts, and he kind of leaves the writer and and takes up with the cinematographer, and you have a really nice marriage for eight weeks or so with that cinematographer. And then when production's done, the director marries the editor. And, you know, obviously there's other side relationships with the actors during production. But then you marry the editor, and the editor um, really gives you a whole other sensibility about what you've shot, how it plays, how it might play, how it might play differently this way or that way. Um, we were cutting this 35 millimeter. There were there was not the... the um, Comfort and convenience that you have today with digital editing, where you can do 15 conversions of the scene uh, without having to send out to the lab for a black and white dupe that you can then recut the scene with, or um, you're not worried about losing trims, uh, put back three frames here or three frames there, and so and when we shoot, when we're when you're doing that kind of editing, the only real time you have. Um, to play around really is is when the editor is like taking a reel of film down from the from the shelf and putting it onto the in this case, either the Moviola or the Cam Steenbeck the old editing machines and during that time you get to sit, you know, sit and think about where you want to cut and what you want it to look like and how you want to pace it and that kind of thing. It's not a lot of time, but the editor sits with it all the time and they sit with it while you're still shooting. So they have the great Advantage of of you know really knowing the film not only all the different coverage that you have but also um, they also give you an eye that you don't have you know give you an ear that you don't have additional ear and eyes on the project and and they're interested in the final project too as, as to how it's going to look that whereas initially you know your writer is not you know is more interested in the words and the and the the cinematography is more interested in the lighting and the editors involved with what you know you finally come up with so um, it actually reminds me of a story actually asked about a story we had a day early on in the shooting and um, uh, it was a action scene with I don't think it's in the film it was an action scene uh, of Robbie being chased down a steep hill on a skateboard I think I must have had I don't know 28 setups I know that that we, we, we went past Z in the alphabet, so I think I had over 26 setups. But they were all sh- we shot it all MOS with sound, and the sound effect we put in later on. We sent the dailies down to Los Angeles, and, um, and they, were, they were great. There was a lot of coverage of this scene. And uh, we got a note back from somebody down there outraged that there's no sound and that how are you ever going to make this film without sound? This is not a film. So, um, you know, they were informed that that's on purpose. And there were a lot of, also I should say, you know, John went on to, I mean, he was a producer on, on Eyes of Laura Mars, and he was a producer on Stars and on Caddyshack, but he, you know, John went on to have many, many successes. Um, uh, somebody who just was in John's company at that time, Laura Ziskin, who became a good friend of mine and who I worked with um, later on. Laura um, became very successful as a producer of Spider-Man um, franchise, um, as well as other things. Uh, Mark Canton was a producer on that film. Uh, I think it was one of his first produ- production work that he ever did. Um, he's gone on to do many
4: things. You said that it, it kind of ruined your career, and I'm curious how you pick up the pieces from that.
3: You know, I mean, it's I mean, maybe over dramatic. Uh, I continue to work and um, uh, worked a lot, as, as you can see from uh, my resume. But the the film, I, my agent at the time was a guy named Steve Roth, um, who was at CAA. He left. He went on to produce the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, The Greatest Greatest American Hero, or something. In any case, he was replaced. Uh, my agent at CA was then Ann Dollard, who was a lovely woman who I got along with very, very well. And uh, but unfortunately, she had passed away uh, very early, um, prematurely, from a horse riding accident. Um, and so I, I was kind of the combination of those things all happening at the same time, um, you know, sort of left me in lurch, and. Um, and then I got involved with documentaries, pretty much. I, I mean, I did some stuff with Barbara, um, and I um, uh, got involved in documentaries after I would uh, Mirror, as do Faces. And so I've stayed in the documentaries now for the last 20-plus um, years
4: you did one that I've been trying to track down coming attractions because it sounds absolutely fascinating especially you coming from that world of trailers it's a
3: history of the trailer you know the trailer uh, business and trailers um, you know I think there's probably I mean I don't know where you haven't been able to find it on, uh, online huh? um, because I think the UCLA archives has a copy of it I know that um, I haven't seen it in years Uh it was Robert Osborne, I think, was on it uh, as the narrator, and um, and I want and he, you know, Bob Osborne used to do
4: um, all the TCM stuff, right? Classic films. I wonder if they might have a copy of it. Tell me about those who serve. Uh, those
3: who serve is uh, my latest documentary. It's basically I've been doing documentaries now, you know, as I said, for a couple decades and they usually are are, try to to make them to be about stuff that matters. And um, sort of going back to the original idea of why I came down to Los Angeles and to get into film was to do films about things that might affect people's uh, view on life or view on things. Anyway, and this is a a, a subject that um, came to me um, about five years ago. Um, There... Turns out that there are very often um, crime waves after major wars. Um, we're after the Civil War and after the First World War. Soldiers come home, and many of them, most of them, you know, large majority of them, come back and integrate back into civilian society perfectly well and become very successful and do great things and become great contributors to society. But there is a minority. Uh, That does come back psychologically wounded, and um, happen to wind up sometimes committing crimes against the same community that they went over to protect, and um, and there's an irony to you know to me that there's an ironical aspect to that, and I thought that that might be interesting to explore whether these guys who were most of them model citizens. who enlisted for reasons and had no, no problem with the law or with any kind of, uh, issues go over there, come back. And naturally now we have, you know, our guys and women do multiple deployments that they never used to have to do. They're, I mean, I, I have a, a Marine in the, in the film who's, has done 13, 14 deployments. um, and so what happens is the increased deployments and increased intensity of the deployments can have adverse effect on the psyche. And you do have people coming back who have had combat trauma and are psychologically wounded and sometimes wind up committing crimes. And so the film is about uh, three variants. Um, one, a decorated Marine served in the uh, detail for Laura Bush and for Hillary Clinton, and uh, worked in many he so he was a, really the creme de la creme of, of Marines. But he, he suffered from PTSD and 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 some other psychological things that happened to him over over there uh, in that, in Iraq and Fallujah primarily. Anyway, and so he winds up uh, killing his upstairs neighbor. Um, And another Marine who had been a Marine for 10 years, a stellar Marine, came back and after several years started having problems and had PTSD and diagnosed with PTSD and wound up one night uh, inexplicably killing his best friend. Um, And a third character who was a missionary and who decided to go join the Marines to do something bigger than himself and came back with night terrors and um, other issues, PTSD and inability to go into crowded areas and the various symptoms that you have very often from combat trauma. And he started taking meth in order to not go to sleep at night because of the nightmares and the traumas that he was having. He winds up being arrested uh, for sales. In any case, these three stories are followed uh, to their conclusion in those who serve. And it, it basically asks the question of whether there should be some kind of mitigating circumstance um, or the, the, the combat trauma that they experience, should that be a mitigating circumstance when considering uh, trying a, a, a veteran and or convicting and or sentencing them? Um, there is a, a, a thing that's taken place fairly recently started in Buffalo, it's called Veterans Court and it's a court primarily for the treatment of veterans who have committed crimes rather than the incarceration. So they take in consideration that the veteran has a psychological issue, PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and they offer it for that person rather than putting them in jail in prison. Uh, it's n- not for crimes, capital crimes, it's not crimes for crimes of violence or, or rape or anything like that, but for other crimes, um, it's, a, it's a successful program that has a very low rate of recidivism and it's been very successful and it's called Veterans Court and there are about 400 plus veterans court throughout the country now to deal with this particular
4: issue that why I made the film. How did you even come to this as being your subject? Uh, a good friend of mine took me to
3: one of these veterans' courts about five and a half years ago. And it was very um, it was very moving. There were, um, in addition to the defendants, there were um, mentors, past veterans, who were there to help these veterans get through. What you do in veteran's court is you do a program, very often about an 18-month program, Uh, that either deals with anger management or PTSD issues or whatever your issues are that led to you being arrested, you get to be put on probation. And um, and anyway, it was a very kind of emotional uh, courtroom, and I was really kind of struck by these guys who really, you know, left perfectly fine and came back very injured. And it's an invisible injury, so you don't really know it. It's not like something you can see. And so I thought, well, this is really interesting on the one hand, and and we've been at war now for a long time um, and may continue to be. I wonder what would happen if there's a veteran who commits something that's a capital crime and whether that can be mitigated by their condition and how they got their condition. And um, so I followed two murder cases um, that uh, took place uh, here in San Diego.
4: That must have been quite just exhausting to put yourself through that as far as this is such a harrowing subject.
3: Yes and no. I mean, making a documentary, one of the major things making a documentary is, is you need access and the people who were involved that I was able to, Connect with and and talk to and that connection that you have with those characters who become characters in your film is a very edifying um, uh, and also gratifying uh, relationship. And um, there's somebody who is a total stranger and now, no longer is, and you've been observing them in moments that ordinarily, you know, you don't get to observe. Total strangers in, and you, it becomes like a bond, and you become closer, and you share a very important story or very important part of their life, and so it's, it can be. I mean, like anything, uh, you know, where you're committed to something and you care about it, it can be draining in that sense. But it's, it it pales in comparison, actually, to what the subjects are going through. And, and one of the great things about documentary filmmaking, and why I got into it and, and, and have been in it for these years, is that you get to film. You get to make, you get film. You get to constantly be shooting. Anything can be part of the story. There You don't wait for makeup. There is no lighting. There's no rehearsal. Um, you'll be, you know, I'll be in the courtroom and um, I'll see something that the bailiff does. And I could use that later on six months down the line you know and that's exciting and that's invigorating and that keeps you you know keeps you going keeps you looking through the viewfinder and uh, keeps you excited about what you you know what's going to show up because it's obviously not scripted so everything's possible
4: so where are you at with the production
3: I we just finished color correction and the final mix and um, and I'm going to have the unpleasant task of trying to find a distributor which is um, never uh, the easy part of the, of the production. Everything else is easier.
4: Well, Mr. Werner, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been fantastic.
3: My pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to talk about it, and I'm, uh, I'd be interested in hearing uh, what you come up with. <laughs>
4: I understand you grew up in Europe and then you moved to the Caribbean for a while. Is that correct?
7: Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I was born in Holland and my parents moved to uh, Curacao when I was five, I think, or turning five. And uh, we stayed there till I was 15 and then we moved back.
4: Oh, wow. So that's quite a big chunk of time.
7: Yeah, yeah. And it was uh, I, It was a Kind of a cold shower to come back or to come to Holland, where I had only been uh, two or three times in between. But to go to school in a in a kind of a, a much more regimented uh, environment, and so it was a big difference. It was a big difference.
4: Tell me about the music that you wrote. Did you write that when you were younger, or did you write that when you went back to Holland?
7: I I actually wrote it right at the point that we were going to be moving, and I thought, oh, I I I have to fix some, I have some to make some kind of a memory, and uh, I did that with some piano pieces. Tell me about
4: you and the arts. I mean, you said that you knew piano, and I'm curious, when did you decide to get into acting?
7: Well, that, that just happened. I I. Uh, I went to film school uh, in in Amsterdam, and uh, then I uh, moved to Hollywood, and uh, I wanted to do stuff behind the camera, so I had never really thought of acting. And in in Hollywood, I uh, met up with uh, another, with a Dutch director who had been working in Hollywood for a while already we uh, started a started a company and for a while we had our own sound sound stage and then w- while we were kind of making extremely low budget uh plan was to make um, musical features um, but its we hardly had a budget so whenever people would uh, walk up to me in the supermarket or on the street and say, "Will you be in in our movie?" Uh, I said yes to to make some extra money. Yeah, that's how it started, really.
4: <laughs> I imagine that was Renee Dadler that you were working with. Renee Dadler. Daud- yes. yeah. How did you two
7: meet? Well, he he was kind of a famous. Well, maybe not famous, but a well-known entity in in uh, Holland because he had managed to make the most expensive feature film up until that time uh, that was made in Holland. And it was the first uh, movie in forever that was done in a studio. And so it was a completely radical accomplishment, and he did that when he was, I think, twenty-one or so. He uh, and and the movie was also pretty remarkable and and very unusual. When I heard that he wasn't uh, Hollywood, I contacted him and uh, said, "Well, how how should I do this? How how should I go about this?" And uh, he said, "Well." <sighs> So that's what I did.
4: Uh, You two worked together on a couple projects. I seem to remember Population One was one of them.
7: Right, right. That that was really the main one. And then uh, he went on to do some some other stuff and some more features, but I wasn't that much involved with those. Did you work on Steve
4: DeJarnett's Tarzana? Did I read that right?
7: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Where did
4: you dig that up? (laughs) Well, uh, he's actually been on the show before, and I'm a big fan of Timothy Carey. How did you get involved with that one? That's such an unusual one. I've only seen the one scene with Tim Carey in it. I've never seen the rest of the film.
7: When I came to Hollywood the first year that I was here, I went to uh, uh, the American Film Institute, and I think that's how we knew each other. Uh, I It must be it, yeah. So I, I, I think he, although I'm, now I'm not sure anymore, but I, I, I thought he was there and that, that I met him there.
4: You talked about people coming up to you and asking you to be in different projects. I do have to ask you, at what age did you realize that you were going to be taller than the average person?
7: Oh, I, I was always kind of the tallest in my class. And, um, by the time I was 14, I was already over two meters. So it was just a given for me. Although uh, I, I did start to grow a lot faster, uh, once I, well, after I was 13 or so. Was
4: that ever frustrating for you wanting to be
7: behind the camera,
4: and then keep getting asked to be in front of it?
7: no i i at that time I was just assuming that I would do both D- due to circumstances uh, i I never got around to uh, doing my own projects but yeah i did I did some more acting instead
4: I think one of the first things I remember ever seeing you in was the Mexican radio video by wall of Voodoo.
7: Yeah, I, I just knew uh, uh, what's his name, um, uh, the, the guy who the leader of the band, or how do you call it, his name, Stan Ridgway. Stan Ridgway, yeah, and well, I knew uh, all of all of Fulu because we were doing the the, the thing, the, the population one uh, was all done with uh, uh, characters uh, from the. Local punk scene, and and they were part of it. So that was just kind of something they asked me, and uh, and I did it. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, how did you get involved with
4: Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band?
7: Well, there was another one of those things, uh, just walking on Hollywood, Hollywood Boulevard, and uh, uh, the director's uh, assistant. I was driving on Hollywood Boulevard, and she uh, saw me walking there, and she stopped her car in, in the middle of traffic, I think, and ran up to me and said, uh, we need you in our movie. <laughs> so uh, that was it, yeah. What was
4: the first role that you remember where you had to put on a lot of makeup?
7: Well, the first, the first one, I think, was Prey. Uh, or The Prey, The Prey, I think, uh, which was a, a very low-budget movie uh, that was shot in a few days in uh, Idlewild in in, uh, in the mountains here near Los Angeles. And that was the first time that I had to, well, that blew glued a lot of latex on my face, yeah. The Ewoks movie is what I was trying to remember. The Ewoks movie, yeah. yeah, that was the first movie where I kind of started to enjoy the whole acting bit and thought, oh, this this could be fun. So yeah, that was in spite of the of all the, because I, I I still can't I still have a hard time dealing with uh, people gluing stuff on my face, but. Uh, Apart from that, it was it was uh, was really uh, the first part that I thought, oh, this this is uh, this can be fun. So yeah, that was uh, the Evox movie.
4: Well, tell me, what do you remember about working on Die Laughing?
7: The producer was uh, John Peters. He was kind of a I don't know if I can say that in public, but he was a pretty obnoxious guy. <laughs> They got a hold of me somehow because I didn't have an agent or anything. I said, Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But they hadn't given me a contract or anything. And they were just assuming that I was going to do it for scale. At a certain point, I said, No, no, uh, well, we, haven't, we don't have a contract yet. So how, how can you assume that? And so, that, anyway, that was the first uh, conflict. And, and I, I also got told, There was a second time also with John Peters. Anyhow, this first time I was told, I will make sure you never work in Hollywood again. (laughs) That's kind of the classic line, right? And irony of ironies, uh, a few years later when I did um, uh, Witches of Eastwick, which also happened to be a John Peters movie, uh a, a production uh there was another conflict and again I was told uh, that <laughs> So yeah, yeah yeah
4: how was it working with uh Robbie Benson and 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 the rest of the cast
7: Well it, it was a it was a fun project and uh it was all shot in, uh, in San Francisco the way I was told while we were shooting was that uh, Robbie Benson was kind of co-directing. That's not clear in the in the uh, when you go to IMDb. That's there's nothing about that. But uh, officially, he was co-directing, um, and I, I think he just wanted to. Start directing, which he is, by the way, still doing, right? And and this was uh, he, he probably this was the best thing he could negotiate that at least he had some say in in uh, how the movie was going to be put together. Yeah, it was great. I uh, I met him once, many many years later when he was kind of uh, doing directing stuff and, and uh, uh, it, I, uh, on the set, I, I, well, I always bragged that I was doing my own stunts. Uh, <laughs> and I laughing, which is partly, partly true. I, I did climb that, uh, that scary, uh, cable ladder up the pole. And I did, uh, uh, fall off the roof of the tent into a haystack. So, so, yeah, that was the, the only movie where I ever got to do my own stunts, if you can call it that. Well,
4: it's got to be hard to find a stunt double for you.
7: Right, right, yeah. Uh, and there weren't very dangerous stunts. So.
4: <laughs> have you had to be doubled over the years? Have you had stunts where people have had to come in and, and take your place?
7: No, I, I I don't think so. Uh, they they do always have um an extra person as standing for when they do the lighting, right? Because that it takes forever and and so they usually have us uh, kind of sit down and then the standins uh, stand there while they set up the lighting. And uh, but otherwise, I, I don't think I've ever ever had a stunt double. No,
4: I've recently read about the production of *Witches of Eastwick* because I didn't remember that it was such a, a conflict with that movie. It sounds like it wasn't that enjoyable to make that one.
7: George Miller, who is a fantastic uh, director and producer, right? He had a hard time because, well, he he ever since before and after he was his own producer and his own boss, so to speak. And this was the first and I think the only time that he was working for a a studio. And um, uh, so he had a hard time. And then uh, Cher also had a hard time because the production went Passed uh, the, uh, the the originally a lot of time, and she had to because of that she had to miss out on the movie she was going to do afterwards. So she she wasn't very happy either. And but otherwise it was uh, beautifully produced, and and I remember that my just my I mean I. Played a very minor part in it, but my costume budget was something like thirteen thousand dollars or so. So I mean, they they really spent a lot of money on everything, and uh, there, there were there were all these little things that I I will never forget. There was like one of the actors, uh, and he, he was based in San Francisco. He was driving around in a Corvette and the license plate said eight inches. <laughs> and he, he always had like two or three women around.
0: <laughs>
7: and, and it was a great time to be in, in uh, San Francisco. Um, you had this very interesting um, restaurant that always had a line around the block. Um, that was kind of—it was right on the border of uh, Italy. Uh, how do you call it? Small Italy or Italy Town? Or and, and and Chinatown, right? And it was the the restaurant was a mix of Chinese and Italian cooking, and <laughs> it was a nice time to be there. And so I, I have great memories of it. Uh,
4: I'm going to be speaking hopefully soon to Jeff Warner. Um, how was he to work with as a director?
7: I, I just don't remember that much of it, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and and I, I I wasn't also I wasn't the kind of character that really needed much of a director's input. So I mean I just had to walk here and there and.
4: Sounds like despite John Peters, you still had a good time on it.
7: Yeah, yeah, I did, I did. What was it like working
4: with Major Barrett on the Star Trek episodes?
7: Uh, it, it was always great. She, I mean, she was a interesting and enjoyable person to work with. And, and uh, after her husband died, she uh, started giving three parties a year, Christmas, Easter, and... Uh, Super Bowl yeah I, I was always invited and uh, it was just yeah it was a uh, was she was very nice to work with with and and the whole experience of coming back on the set uh, once a year and and kind of uh, getting to know everybody again it, it was altogether a great uh, experience
4: and I do have to ask you what has been your experience like working with David Lynch
7: kind of a dream experience I should say. Uh, I, I mean, I was a great, I was a big fan of his and so being asked to, uh, be in one of his projects was, uh, was just fantastic. And yeah, he, he has a very different, uh, way of directing at least with me. I, I mean, I, he never told me anything except, uh, uh, doing it slower. Yeah, it was always a very unusual but great experience to uh, to be part of it.
4: What was it like for you going back and, and revisiting that in 2017?
7: I mean, I, I didn't know until the last moment that I was going to be part of it. So yeah, it was a great surprise and and it was a very different experience because um, I was practically... No, I, I had a few scenes—one with Kyle and one with. So there, there, there were, but most of the time I was on my own, or with uh, with my uh, with Senor Senora Vito, or yeah, that was her name, right? So it, uh, and there was a lot of blue screen stuff where I was uh, lying down on a box, and, and so it was. I I didn't see that much of the cast uh, that time around but uh, yeah it was, it was great I was double happy that uh, what was what to me turned out to be the most far out episode. Uh, that that was the one that I was in <laughs> yeah episode eight the whole thing was in black and white right and it was I mean it was well it was just great
4: when that episode happened, my jaw was on the floor through the whole thing.
7: Right, right, right.
4: <laughs> you've been in so many very, very fun movies, like the Adams Family movies and Oblivion. Uh, I mean, just so many great things. What have been some of your uh, favorite things that you've done over the years?
7: I always get asked that, and I can never give a good answer. Uh, because they're all... Uh, like Star Trek was great just because uh it has such a following and and so i i'm still going to star trek conventions and uh and it was a great cast to work with and uh and then the adams family was i mean it's such an honor to step in uh, in lurch's shoes for a while and uh, so, they, they were all different uh, experiences and uh, they were all fun, uh, including Guy Laughing. Uh, That's that what you were going to interview me about, but we haven't spoken about that yet.
4: <laughs> I know that you don't act just in English, that you go back and you, you've acted in Dutch before as well. What is that like for you being in a Dutch production?
7: Well, in, in Hollywood because everything is union, everything is kind of uh divided up, uh, the props person can't move a plant because that's the plant person. But that's a different union, right? And and in in Holland uh everybody does pretty much everything. Uh so I think the makeup person was the one who was fitting wigs and and uh 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 and then it's it's yeah it's kind of strange to uh talk Dutch because I never do that here I used to do it with Renee Dowler, but I, we don't do to circumstances we do that don't do that as often now so and my my whole family my wife and my kids don't speak a word of Dutch yeah that's that's kind of a strange experience, but I mean, if I ever get invited again, I, I will do it again over there.
4: So I know you've got a couple of movies in post-production with Dr. Sleep and um, is it The Eden Theory?
7: Yeah, that, that's um, that was kind of a, this guy's project that he basically produced on his own, and, and I knew him because he I I once got this the most elaborately it was this envelope, uh, with photos that somebody wanted me to sign. And, and, but the envelope had been illustrated, uh, for a while had it on my walls was, (laughs) so I I kind of stayed in touch with uh, the guy who was then still in high school. And, uh, I think one or two years after he was, Done with college, or maybe he while he was still in college, uh, he emailed me and uh asked me to be in his movie, and I said, Sure, yeah. So that was, that was that.
4: so, not necessarily as prestigious as Dr. Sleep's going to be.
7: No, 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 it's just a, a very uh, I don't know what kind of a budget he had, but it was very minimal, and uh, uh well, it's been taking him a few years to get it. Finished
4: <laughs> it's nice that you can do the smaller projects as well as the larger ones
7: yeah yeah, yeah. I mean it, it uh, in in his case it was just because i i well I was impressed that somebody who was uh that young uh got got it together to uh, do a feature project, but I have no idea what what it's gonna be when it's done. <laughs>
4: You were in it so briefly, but I loved the cast of "I Woke Up Early the Day I Died."
7: Yeah, that was another strange project, but also also fun to do. Yeah, but I, I have to tell you one anecdote about years later, years after "Die Laughing" had uh, finished. I was doing research for one of Rene's uh, projects, and. I ended up in the movie archives of the Air Force in somewhere near Bakersfield. And it was this gigantic uh, kind of a warehouse building. And um, I guess they had just hundreds of thousands of film cans in there. And maybe they had other stuff too. But uh, so everybody was kind of in uniform there and and I was uh, I had to look for a, for a kind of an old fashioned dog fight, right where where two airplanes uh, are in combat with each other and um, so they they kept showing me stuff and um, but it never had two planes in it and I said no, no I, I have to see something where there's Two, two airplanes and and, uh, and they well we kept walking to different offices and at a certain point I walked by one office and there was a poster of Die laughing in the cubicle and I I pointed pointed at it and I said oh I was in that movie I, I was a Russian spy in there <laughs> and. Uh, Oh, well, that, 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 that triggered a, a very well a, 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 to be expected when you do that in a military environment. <laughs> did they ask you to leave after that? No, but they they, they did become uh, at a certain point. They showed me something that was uh, was almost what I wanted, and uh, right at the, at the. Beginning, it said something like second choice. So I said, "Yeah, this is this is really good." But can I see first choice? And the guy uh, goes totally silent and he leaves the room. And he comes back with his, his superior, and they stand. Uh, they're kind of leaning over me. I was sitting on a chair, and they say, "How did you know there was a first choice?" <laughs> I said, well, because it said second choice. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs>
4: it must have been interesting working both sides of the camera at that point. And are you still trying to do filmmaking as well?
7: Not right now. I, I had one project that uh I wanted to I shot some footage and I, I need to do some more footage but I, I, I never get around to it uh, at the moment, so not right now, and who knows if I ever get it finished.
4: Well, I'm curious, what other
7: projects are you working on these days? Well, I'm I'm mostly doing uh, photography. And the thing I'm working on right now is for my brother, who is a well-known artist in Holland, and he's having exhibits, and I Uh, many years ago I I did a whole bunch of panoramas of his kind of monumental work so like uh, traffic uh, plazas, buildings that kind of stuff and um, now he wanted something slightly edited so that's what I'm working on right now yeah well I, I don't know just it seems to be never ending just I I have this office in the garage, and um, I'm trying to create more space so I can be more efficient, and uh, that seems to take forever. So, I don't know. It's just uh, (laughs) not very interesting what I'm doing right now, but it it seems to take up all my time. Yeah, I'm I'm learning how to do photogrammetry which is kind of a process where you make a uh a 3D file of a 3D object so you can uh either make it do a 3D print or uh show it online as a 3D uh interactive object, right? Um the makeup artist on uh, Gerald's game uh made this life size bust of my character and mailed it to me. <laughs> so I, I I have to do my redo my website completely because I, I did it when I was while I was learning to do a website and I never changed it. So I, I want to completely redo it. And so that's one of the things I want to put on that website: uh, an interactive uh, 3D of this character of Doctor Sleep, so that you can kind of uh, twirl it around, in, around in any direction as a 3D object in the browser. And so I'm I'm still struggling with that. And uh, well,
4: that sounds really cool.
7: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's nice. It's uh, I like doing it. I, I sometimes do uh, websites for a graphics designer who is a good graphics designer, but he knows zero about um, uh, websites. So I do that for him. And yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real pleasure talking with you.
7: All right. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. He's a hot rod
0: monkey tearing up the jungle. He's a hot rod monkey. I'm a monkey's uncle and the power he feels when he's behind the wheel turns a hot rod monkey to a hot rod junkie. I'm a hot rod monkey junkies, favorite uncle sinister monkey burning up the jungle. I'm an evil hot rod monkey junkies, funky uncle and the sound he Like the sound a monkey makes when he drinks beer It's a funky monkey jungle good banana beer
4: All right we are back and we are talking about die laughing now years and years ago I think even before I had the podcast this was back when I was still doing the zine I emailed Bud Court or Bud Court's assistant asking for an interview about die laughing and rather than getting a yes or a no I just got a message from his assistant that says Bud said nobody did <laughs> So I guess he's not too big of a fan of this, and I know that he did this right after an accident, and it's funny to see all the scars on his forehead while this is going on, and he's got his hand wrapped up at another point, and I'm just like, is this all from the accident? And I know for sure that the stuff on his forehead was, so I feel bad for this guy, and then I'm wondering... Was he all hopped up on goofballs when he was doing this performance, or what? Good for him. I'm,
5: you know, listen. If I were in that movie, I would want to be hopped up on goofballs for the shoot. I mean, especially if I were in pain. But yeah, it's like you know, sure. Like, and I know we talked about this before. I just miss this kind of movie, and I'm not talking about like necessarily the wacky spy comedy. I'm talking about like, like, and Touchstone brought this back in the '80s. Where Disney was basically like, okay, they're going to be low to mid budget star vehicles and they're going to be fluff. And they can be dramatic fluff like Bette Midler and Stella, or they can be like Ruthless People, Outrageous Fortune. Uh, they could be even quality like Good Morning Vietnam. That's a genuinely decent movie. Um, and well, like, you know, Down Out in Beverly Hills is a genuinely decent movie. There are a lot of them, but you know, a lot of them were like taking care of business with Jim Belushi, Mr. Destiny. Um, I mean, all those touchstone movies that, you know, basically all they had, hello again, all they had to do was have this star who was like, not an A-lister, but like a B, B B-minus lister and, uh, some kind of, you know, vehicle, like straight talk, Dolly Parton and James Woods, you know? Um, and, and they weren't, there's a comfort to that kind of movie, that kind of like, okay, the stakes aren't really high here, you know? Um, you're going to enjoy yourself. You're going to laugh or if it's like Stella or beaches, you're going to like cry and you're going to eat your popcorn. You're going to get out of the heat. You're going to be in an air conditioned theater and and that's it. And you know, I, I, you know, everyone has bemoaned the death of the mid budget movie in, uh, at this period, because right now it's like with the ascent of streaming, you know, they've kind of taken up the mantle to the low to mid budget movie, but really there still is no real mid budget movie. There's like low and like, Bigger, low-budget movies, and then there's, like, Marvel and, you know, whatever, the giant movies. And there's something very sweet about, like, okay, Teen Idol makes vehicle with, like, crazy villain and, you know, spies and a monkey. It's like, if you watch the trailer to this movie, it seems like a lot more fun than it actually is. Like, that, I really genuinely think the trailer is just wonderful. Like, you know, because the trailer's fast and it's like cut with the music and it looks fun and he's like freaking out and there's a monkey and there's craziness going on. And, you know, you watch the movie and as we spoke before, it's like there are these scenes that are just so slow and it's and it's not slowness that the editor can get around. It's slowness because they shot it that way. And you can see the editor cut everything to the bone, like, you know, like coming out of shots, like getting it down and. Yeah. I, I just wish there were movies that were like, okay, this is a wacky movie with, you know, whoever, you know, I don't know. I don't know who the, who, who the appropriate BB minus talent these days would be.
6: Going back to how you started this, David, about, you know, touchstone pictures as a studio and being that mid range. I mean, I, I always sort of felt that a lot of what they put out was, well, I mean, based on my memories of the eighties was, a-list stuff. I mean, maybe his mid-range budget in terms of how much they put in for the production. But so many of those films, at least what they did here, were really big business. And like um, something like Beaches, uh, Bet Midler was a big name already, you know, uh, through her music. But well, before that, um, uh, Outrageous Fortune and uh, Ruthless People uh, where Danny, Danny DeVito and, you know, certainly Robin Williams was and would have been an A lister at the time of Good Morning Vietnam.
5: No, actually he was not. He was not an A lister before Good Morning. No, Good Morning Vietnam he was he was I mean he was he was known he did comic relief and stuff like that but he was not What you would call an A-list like And I'm talking about A-list talent of the 80s That's like Sylvester Stallone, that was Arnold Schwarzenegger Those, like Eddie Murphy Those were the guys who were like You put them in anything, like Eddie Murphy in The Golden Child If you put anyone else in that movie No one would have come to see it because it's Not a good movie, but he's great You go see it and it made like $100 million In 1986, like Those were the A-listers, those were the ones who Like basically you put them in anything, like Tom Cruise was like a super A-lister um, all those guys. Uh, but like Whoopi Goldberg, like not an A-lister at that point. Like you know, like for the what was the movie where she was in the office and she had to dress up as someone else. But for all of the Good Morning Vietnam's, which was a big hit, especially given the fact that I mean, and what I mean by mid-budget movies is like they weren't A-list in the sense that they just didn't spend a lot of money on them. They weren't very expensive, and they were kind of goofy, like Outrageous Fortune. I think is just a, a lovely, sweet, cute, little, fun movie, but it's not an expensive movie. We're not talking about like, you know, you're talking about A-list. It's like, you know, Rambo First Blood Part Two was an A-list movie. That was like a huge budget movie.
6: Anything with explosions. <laughs>
5: basically. Or Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy or explosions in the 80s. That was basically A-list. This isn't even like those like mid-budget movies like No Way Out with Kevin Costner or even like – I don't think The Untouchables cost an enormous amount, but that was considered an A movie. These were movies like Hello Again, Troop Beverly Hills. Most of them kind of came and went. You know, they, were, they weren't really sought after. You know, they were kind of filler. But they did well. And I, I imagine they probably did very well overseas because Bette Midler was not a star in movies at all before Ruthless People and Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Down and Out Beverly Hills was an unexpected hit and she got such great reviews. Nobody expected that movie to do what, they, what it did. Or ruthless people, for that matter. That was the first movie after uh, the airplane and Top Secret that the Zucker Abrams Zucker people did.
6: So, like, because I went to see her in The Rose when that came out, and uh, I mean, look how old was I? I would have been like thirteen or fourteen at the time. And for me, I thought, oh wow, she's now a big star, and I loved that film. And you know, saw Divine Madness, God knows how many times uh, when that came out, and it seemed. I, I know, my memory's poor, but I'm thinking between Divine Madness and, and Ruthless People, it would have been quite a few years. I'm not even sure she did anything in that time, so she would have had to have built up again.
5: No, no, we, we can visit the magic that is Don Siegel's Jinxed, which <laughs> basically had her leave the, <laughs> the movie industry. She took a break after Jinxed. Uh, And I think I want to say, I don't know this for a fact because it's not in front of me. I think her next movie or her next big movie was Down Out in Beverly Hills. She was on top of the world with The Rose. She was nominated for that. But Jinxed was a mega bomb. And if you ever see it, you won't forget
6: it. I won't. I won't. You know what? I think the biggest disappointment for me was uh, scenes from a mall because I thought, Bette Midler, Woody Allen, oh, it's going to be a laugh fest. And that was the most dull that you see that's the thing i can take as i think you know probably most film fans could say we can take a film that's got a whole lot of illogical structure and is bad in its way but it's still got some level of entertainment scenes from a mall was the most boring thing i think i've ever seen
5: well but and that's what kind of separates die laughing from something like foul play or even hudson hawk but both those movies i mean foul play you can make the argument is a legitimately good movie there are friends of mine who like it much more than I do. I think it's fine. I like it. I laugh. I, I wouldn't particularly seek it out. Um, Hudson Hawk is just bonkers and I love it for that reason, but it's so energetic and so, like, aggressively wanting to entertain you in every goddamn frame. Every frame of that movie is just like, okay, are you paying attention? Something wacky's gonna happen. And it's like, okay, I'm, you know, you're working hard for this. Fun fact there was a monkey in Hudson Hawk that was cut out.
4: Oh, yeah, Eddie.
5: Eddie, Little Eddie, Eddie. who was killed by the mob before the movie started. He was killed by the mob, and then before he kills James Coburn, and you can see this in the the cut, he puts a picture – he has it in his wallet or something – a picture of Little Eddie, sticks it to Coburn's head, and then puts Coburn on the car that goes off the cliff or something. But you can still see Little Eddie's on his head as he's going in the final cut.
4: You should listen to our uh, Hudson Hawk episode because we interviewed Daniel Waters and he talks a lot about
5: that. He is – first of all, he is a national treasure. Let's just be frank. Daniel Waters is a national treasure. Anybody who wrote Heathers and Hudson Hawk and all the other stuff that he's done, including Ford Fairlane, if you want to put that in there, he's wonderful. And he's a real movie lover. He's great.
4: Seems like old times is the other movie I was trying to think of. The other Goldie Hawn, the Chevy Chase, Charles Grodin film.
5: Oh, yeah. And he's wanted by the the police, right? I think so. Because I
4: used to watch that and foul play on cable a lot. And apparently, you know, I talked about how I saw Die Laughing on cable. But one of my friends on Facebook was just like, I watched this 100 times on HBO. And that was like one of his go-to movies was watching Die Laughing. And he's like... Was it a shitty movie? Yes. But did I watch the hell out of it? Yes, I sure did. I was like, okay, good. You know, like, I'm glad you recognize your nostalgia because sometimes that's really dangerous when it comes to that. Like how we're talking about, you know, oh, this was the best movie and Fish Called Wanda, which I like. Fish Called Wanda was just the best movie in the world. It's like,
5: well, is it though? It's It's fine. A, it's, it's, a fine. it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But, I mean, but I mean, you look at those movies from the late 70s, early 80s, especially the ones with scripts that maybe are more ridiculous and not so good. You need Chevy Chase in order to make modern problems watchable. Oh, God.
4: Is it watchable? Is that movie watchable now?
5: Okay, maybe. It's somewhat a little bit watchable. It's a little bit watchable. Like, toward the end when everything's going completely nuts and he snorts up a whole line of demon powder around his bed and all that stuff and turns to the camera and screams – Yes! <laughs> I like it. That's great. I mean, uh, all right. That's that's classic nonsensical Chevy Chase. Robbie Benson needed the Chevy Chase vibe in this movie. I was I was going to say I was going to be horrible and say throw some cocaine at him, but you know it's like we can't joke about these things. Cocaine is a terrible thing. It has ruined many lives. That said maybe a couple of espressos. I don't know. (laughs) I like it.
4: Yeah. We didn't even get to the whole doing, doing, doing thing that, uh, Morris referenced in his opening, which is that's the moment that won my heart. (laughs) (laughs) That was the moment that won my heart when I first saw this movie and he starts doing that to the monkey. And I was just like, what? Because I missed the beginning of it. I came in midway through. So him just saying doing, 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 doing to this monkey, I was like, "What the fuck is happening? This is this is sublime. I am with this movie. Whatever it, wherever it goes next, I am with it."
5: The movie needed more of that.
6: That's him tuning up his guitar. The monkey is obviously a guitarist in a previous life or something. Those same notes that he's singing are the tune tune up notes, right? Correct, correct. But he's t- he's tuning up via harmonics rather than just strictly playing. Tuning each note against separately against each other, like most of us amateur guitarists do. While we we're talking about this, I did think about one other spy movie. Well, yeah, a sort of spy movie where the bad guys are after something that the good guys have, and well, there's no monkey in it, but they're musicians, and that's 1965's Help the Beatles. And that film cops a lot of shit, and I will defend it to the day I die. I love that film, and I don't think it's just. Nostalgia. I mean, I did watch it like on TV countless times as a kid, but um, yeah, I, I find it genuinely funny uh, that British sense of humour that you know was it was basically the goons on film. And, um, I, I know the Beatles themselves, or at least John Lennon never put much stock in it afterwards. And yet it wasn't like hard days night, which was 24 hours in the life of the Beatles. And I know Lennon often said, well, we were supporting characters in our own film, but just as a piece of cinema, I absolutely love it. And yes. So that was a film where, you know, the bad guys are after Ringo's ring. And, um, I'm trying to remember was there. No, no, there was no monkey. There was no monkey. Shame.
5: I mean, if you really want to get granular, it's like, you know, I'm a fan of Spice World, believe it or Mm not. Oh, yeah. Nothing
4: wrong with Spice World.
5: That movie had a crazy energy from like they knew like, okay these people like these people have limited range. Let's just be like, you know, I'm not going to say if they can act or not because they do perform and they're fine as themselves. I enjoyed that movie. But that movie, like you couldn't relax once. That movie just went. Like, it started and it just kept going and there was no point, at no point in that movie did that movie let you stop and think about how ridiculous it all was. And that's what this movie needed. It needed, like, no time to think at all. He needed to be bouncing from, like, being, like, a rabbi to – or a hasidim to, like, you know, stealing a cap. Like, I mean – or or uh, or that whole scene, that whole very long scene where he's on the phone – Imitating the old woman calling Charles Dern- Dernick. <laughs> what? What? I need a cap. What? <laughs> I'm like, wait a second. Wait. Aren't, aren't you like on the run? Like, what? What happened? What are you doing? Does any sane person act this way? But it's like, okay, you're going to be crazy. Like the rest of the movie, you should have been crazy this whole time. Like you should have been doing crazy shit completely throughout this movie. And I would have been down.
4: All right. Before we head out, I want to thank you guys for coming on and discussing Die Laughing for experiencing this film for the first time. Again, I have to thank you for that. So, Morris, what has been happening with you?
6: Big thing in Love That Album world, and we'll know for sure in uh, about C here in 2020, is uh, Love That Album has now been taken on uh, as part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. So, I'm one of 24 music related podcasts yay so um that's uh that's very exciting i'm looking forward to working with these people there's some lovely people on board i just sort of found that i was listening to some of these podcasts anyway and then made the uh connection oh you're part of a network oh i'll write them an email and see whether they take me on and blow me down they they did i was really really shocked but yep anyway so i'm looking forward to uh being part of that uh network and yeah some great shows on there it was all part of the uh rock and roll archaeology podcast framework so uh that's very exciting so in terms of uh, actual next podcasts uh see here we're recording next week a uh, a 2018 film from finland called heavy trip that's another uh, well not a chase comedy although there is a, a chase element laid on it but it's um yeah, that's, that's a film that's a lot of fun, so we'll be talking about that next week. And the next Love That Album will be a, a, about a band from England which started out in the late 70s and pretty much had a career until their lead singer um, got very, very ill. Uh, the name of the band is Cardiacs, and uh, the album is called Sing to God. I'll be talking about that with my son, Max. Oh, I forgot to mention also Heavy Trip will be um, having a fellow who you've had on the projection booth before, Mike. We'll be getting a Mike or mcpadden because i thought who out there knows a lot about heavy metal i thought ah mr mcpadden so um uh, we'll be joined by him that's a lot of fun
4: he definitely knows this stuff. oh yeah
6: oh yeah so in fact i'll probably just sort of bring I'll, I'll just probably say hey mike what did you think about the film walk away for 40 minutes let him do all the talking because he'll come up with all the interesting stuff and david how goes everything in your world sir
5: Things are fantastic uh, and progressing. I'm still working. Uh, well, still, these things take time. Uh, I'm working on my documentary about Exorcist to The Heretic called Heretics. And uh, we have a URL. The site is not up yet. Uh, it will be soon uh, because we're about to go and get uh, a little more money, which is wonderful. Uh, but it's hereticsmovie.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook, and right now, it we have a majority of the interviews, I think, in the can, uh, so it looks like we're going to have a late 2020 premiere, if not early 2021, we'll see. Um, but yeah, it's it's super exciting, and I'm also prepping another thing that I'd really love to shoot next year, but it's all – It's all based on all that life stuff, like, (laughs) trying to figure out, like, when to do all this stuff and uh, get it done. But, yeah, things are progressing, and it's great.
4: Well, guys, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, ProjectionBoothPodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth save a singing monkey.
2: And a comb. He cut my baby hair off and gave me a burr. You could see the skin on my dome. I am a show got I remember it all Till the day I damaged To bad by the shop. Last September, as I was passing through driving from New York to LA, I decided to visit all my childhood homes where I used to run and play. Seems like only yesterday, what I wanted was a moment. Past, but, but that's not what I got. Oh Lord, the corner of Colonial and Pine was an empty parking.